You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Forever. Typical, Lydia. We did it, Lydia. What? What did we do? The hundredth episode oh, that. of the Dead Air podcast. Mm-hmm. We certainly did. You know, one of the things about uh, when you're making these things, 100 movies, 100 conversations, 100 times I'm sitting in front of you after a movie just talking about it, having a wee... Chinwag. Oh, God, don't say chinwag. That's disgusting sounding. <laughs> you don't really think about milestones like this. And we're not really like a self-congratulatory pair of people. Not really. No, we do that off air. We, we do that definitely off air. A high five as soon as we say goodnight to y'all. And then we get all, we yeah. go out for dinner and we like drink Cristal and like. Oh, yeah. And then there's 14 hours of just the messiest circle jerk you've ever seen in your life no yeah not at all uh we don't give ourselves as much credit and and so today we're gonna put ourselves through the ringer (laughs) with not just one awesome movie for our 100th episode but four fucking movies we're gonna kick the ass out of four movies for our 100th episode we're absolutely gonna kick their fucking ass they ain't gonna see it coming it's because they're blind Wes. uh oh yeah Well, anyways, the point being is that we are going to tackle the Tombs of the Blind Dead series. Mm -hmm. The Blind Dead series. And you might be asking yourself, but Wes, we already did that one. We did it for episode five or six or something like that. It's done. First of all, it's episode one, just not chronologically episode one. And we did do it, but... There's a whole story that we've told a couple of times on the show. So if you guys are familiar with the story, you know what's up. And if you're not familiar with the story, I'm going to tell it. If you missed our interview with Craig Chaos, I said the story there too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it all starts with a dude that we both know named Tomb Dragomir. Now, Tomb is a guy that used to have a radio show called Rumorgue Radio. It was an attachment to Rumorgue Magazine. Big horror magazine, y'all get it with your horror blocks if you subscribe, and also it's just a really big horror magazine it's with a lot of the foremost and only Canadian horror magazine. Mm-hmm. And Rumorg Radio was the first podcast I regularly t- downloaded and tuned into. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I went back to iTunes because I had like totally. Removed iTunes from every device and everything I had. <laughs> it's, it's a fucking unwielding behemoth, so it, I get it. it. Is. Yeah, but um, it definitely was my favorite podcast. And the first podcast that made me want to get into podcasting, it was the first podcast that I shared among other people and recommended to other people. And it's also the first place I ever listened to Patron Saint of Plagues, because before I even knew they were from Ottawa, I'd heard a song on Rumorg Radio. So that was really cool. That's a fun fact that no one knows. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, Toom definitely, with his music selection, what the show was, was it was, you know, it was a radio show, and Toom would scour for music that would be in keeping with the 
theme of Rue Morgue magazine. So a lot of horror punk bands and, and just like uh, music that seemed to reflect the attitude um, of horror fans. Terror tunes. Terror tunes. Same thing that he's doing with Tombstreet Box today too, but he had segments in within the show too, as far as mm-hmm. like news and things like that. And even some travelogue bits like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There would be a lot of hla- stuff. hilarious House of Frankenstein for the airways. It, it, exactly. And, you know, introduced me to like bands that I love too. Birthday Massacre, the first episode I ever heard. Mm-hmm. Birthday Massacre was on it. And I was like, this is a catchy fucking tune. Creeps with a K, not the Ottawa Creeps, but the Creeps in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's I became a huge fan of mm-hmm. Creeps, thanks to uh, yeah. Tomb Degamere specifically. And like Zombina and the Skeletons. Too. Hell fucking yes. Yeah. So, I mean, my CD collection has grown because of this guy. But I didn't always know who Tomb was. I didn't always know what Rumorg Radio was. I knew what Rumorg Magazine was. But I wasn't even a regular reader. And I wasn't, but I had this inkling. I just had this urge. I wanted to write for Rumorg. I wanted to write for Fangoria. I wanted to write for a horror magazine. I used to get these all the time as a kid. And I just wanted to contribute. And I don't know why. I have no fucking idea. Because I wasn't a writer. Not really. Um, I never really had an interest. Like, I wanted to write. When I was young, I wanted to teach martial arts. That's what I did a lot. And then I wanted to go into broadcasting. I wanted to get into journalism. But not written journalism. Because here's my fucking ugly little secret. I can't spell and I'm shitty at punctuation. So I'm not very well trained into being a writer like that. Writing the show notes and the blurbs for the show has really gotten a lot better the past year, I will say. Even the past four months, it's gotten a lot better. <laughs> but but for some... <laughs> thank you. Well, it's, practice makes perfect. But that's, I think, nine tens of horror journalists would have the exact same aspirations they, they weren't writers they didn't go to school for writing they wanted to write and maybe not so much nowadays because i find there's a lot more journalists and uh english grads writing for horror magazines thank fucking god so the quality has gone up a lot in the past decade but like when we were kids reading these magazines they weren't written by journalists necessarily yeah it was because these things were birthed out of fanzines mm-hmm. right so and and for those of you who don't know, fanzines were basically just what blogs are today. Uh, it, Except it, with paper and staples. Yeah, exactly. People handing this shit out on the street, which is, by the way, where Rue Morgue got started. Yeah. I've now, seen some of those originals, and it's it's enchanting and endearing whenever I would I would do anything to have a copy. Mm-hmm. Anything. Mm-hmm. Anything. Hear that, people? <laughs> anything. Anything. But... Um, I had this inclination that I wanted wanted to just I wanted to talk about something. I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something more with my life than just work at a grocery store. On and rock. Because <laughs> that's what you want to do with your life. Yeah, I ju- I just want to do more. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know where to start and so I started saying like I don't know, I'll 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 write horror reviews and I'll submit them to Rumor haphazardly and I never got any messages back and I'm not fucking surprised. So I thought, well, maybe I'll start writing for my own website and I'll just do like a blog because my roommate, Scott, who you guys might know is the writer of Scott's Horror Corner, one of my very best friends, he gave me the best piece of advice I ever got in my entire life when I was thinking about going back to school for writing. And he said, Wes, you can either go back to school and get a piece of paper that says you can write or you can start writing today. And so I said, okay, yeah, I'll start a blog. And that's where Spider Pictures, that was the last push I needed to do that. But one day, one day, one fateful day, three o'clock in the fucking morning, I'm sitting there 
watching television. I still had cable. And what comes on is an, a documentary about Rue Morgue magazine. And within that documentary, they had a little showcase of something called Rue Morgue Radio. And there was Tomb. And talked about his production and talked about what it was and et cetera, et cetera. And so there I was saying, well, hang on a second here. Why don't I use my broadcasting degree to sort of see if I can squeak in the door to get into this world? It's what I wanted. Mm-hmm. It was a little crack, a little sliver. I could get my fucking head in there and then my body would fall like a fucking hamster. So... Because you have floating bones. You have floating bones like a rat. So I immediately got up from my bed and I went over to my computer and I went to the Rue Morgue website and sure enough, Tomb had contact information there. And I cold called them. Radio taught me that. It was you could just cold call people. Without having listened to a single fucking second of his show, I said, let me help. I want to do production. It'll cost you nothing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then... He messaged me back within less than 24 hours, and he just laid it out real simple for me. Make me some stuff, and if I like it, I'll use it. And so I made him some stuff instantaneously. I made eight splitters and bumpers. And in radio, that's basically like the bleep sweeps and creeps that happen in between whatever broadcast stuff. It's basically just transition for the ear to let you know that something has ended, something else is beginning. And also I did some calls for Rue Morgue Radio. Maybe I'll release some of those. Yeah, yeah, he should because they're fun. Yeah, um, so anyway, uh, so that's what I did. And then from there, Tomb and I became friends. And I became a very big fan of the Rue Morgue radio. I, obviously, I got caught up real quick because can't, you can't make splitters and bumpers for uh, where you don't know the sound that he's going for. So I spent... Which I'm picturing like sitting in a, in a control room at CBC Radio and just throwing in some of the splitters and bumpers that you made. If I put a bed or a bumper in anything from CBC Radio, that was what it would have been like. If you aren't familiar with the audio landscape of a show, you can't do that sort of work. And it would just be hilarious if someone tried. Yeah, so I was like, I need to become this fucking station's number one fan today. Yeah. Not tomorrow, not in a week. I need to know it now because I, I need to know his sound. So after listening to about 10 episodes in a row um i I was like okay i know i get what he's doing with this i under i recognize hilarious house of frightenstein thing that he was going for Mm -hmm. but a little bit scarier a little bit edgier than that i'm a little less 70s whimsical and a little bit more um modern day a little bit more punk a little bit more chud a little bit more chud yeah exactly and so that started our friendship and of course, like, and, and then, of course, I met you through... Ottawa Horror. Ottawa yeah. Horror, busting down the door of the first Ottawa Comic-Con, official Comic-Con, going to every goddamn horror fucking booth there. Like, I'm smart and you're dumb and I got the cure that ails you and I write for horrormovies.ca and spiderpictures.net and... <laughs> and I, not long ago, I pulled out one of those original business cards of yours. Yeah. And you didn't, you're like, oh, sorry, dude, I don't have a business card. And I'm like, I got one. Because <laughs> I had about four or five of your old business cards from that era. Yeah. Yeah. yeah dusty and old. And then after a few years, Rumor Radio went away because just the shift in, in uh, priorities. But then one day, Tomb uh, sort of whimsically said, I miss Rumorg Radio. I want it to come back. I want to do something. It won't be Rumorg Radio, but it'll be something similar to it. Which I always think is great when everyone sort of freaks out when 
he mentions anything like that because all of his fans come out of the woodwork again to remind him and everyone else around them how fucking important that show was to them, right? Yeah, yeah. he was doing a lot of good with that show. So he had a lot of support even with the idea. Yeah, and so I supported him. I sent him, I, I, I tweeted like, yeah, man, that's fucking awesome. Let's do it. He sends me a message. He was like, hey, man, I want you to be part of the show. And it was probably just because of the, the support and the fact that he knew that I could do production and that why not, right? Like if you're looking for doing a new show and he was losing, he wouldn't have access to his movie reviewers that he had previously on his show. There was always a segment there. And the magazine, yeah, because he had the caustic critics for a while, but mm-hmm. like, um, and other, like Lisa was part of it too, which was always one of my favorite segments. But like to have a horror magazine, that Dead as Hell podcast that I'd belonged to previous as well was the same sort of idea. They wanted a book reviewer. They wanted a mm-hmm. anime reviewers, which was what I was doing. They had their main horror review event of the show, but it was otherwise a magazine. Yeah, exactly. And so he said, hey, man, I want you to be part of this. And what I want from you is basically you can re- he wanted me to review things and he didn't say movies. If I remember the message correctly, he said something akin to it could be a video game or a movie or whatever, just horror related. This would be the West segment of the show. This would be the West segment of the show. And so can you just record that, you know, get it done and then send it to me so I can edit it and make it part of the show? I was elated. Obviously, I was going to do it Mm -hmm. because this is the kind of thing that I wanted to do. I wanted to be. Yes, I like doing production for him and, and stuff like that. And that was really fun. And I was happy to do it. And he did end up using some of the bumpers that I, I uh, made. But obviously, you want to be on air. You want to have your voice heard. You want to be part of the show, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do. I'm an egomaniac. Like, I love to hear my own voice. Obviously, the story is 600 hours long. So I would be happy in production where I could edit the fuck out of it. <laughs> Trim it down, Wes. You're too long. Well, that became my thing. And so I made an episode. I reviewed a movie called Bone Setter. It is a Brett Kelly movie, is it not? It is. Is this why I keep wanting to review Brett Kelly movies for Dead Air Podcast? <laughs> it, for those of you who don't know, this is a, a, this is a very, very, very local, local film. Holy yeah, crap. Very local. And this is why I wanted to do Homicycle, so very, very bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's got the Gasleys. He's just done Gasleys and Tomb did the audio for Gasleys. So, mm-hmm. I mean... I toyed with the idea of going to see the premiere of Gasly's when it was playing here in Ottawa. And because it hasn't hit otherwise, it's just had its premieres. And I always toy with doing a Brett Kelly film for Dead Air. And this is probably exactly why. (laughs) Yeah, probably. But after listening back to it, Toom was happy with it. He had no complaints. He said he was going to edit it down. I think I added some, I think I gave some audio clips and he seemed happy with it. But I listened back to it and I couldn't stand it could not stand it Mm -hmm. it just sounded so bad it was scripted it was i was coming down on it but when i'm scripted then i'm like you got to put jokes in this and thankfully not all of them remained after tomb's edit but uh i I was like this this sucks and this has to be i need somebody else and you were the only person that i even considered for a second i said lydia will definitely save me She'll, she'll make this better. It's mm-hmm. got to be a conversation. And you and I met through Ottawa Horror. And you had told me upon our first meeting that you knew Tomb Dragomir. And so 
it was this weird again it shows you how small our little horror community is it is because it was like maybe the year or two previous i had mm-hmm. met up with him and i like talked to him and recommended tunes like i was just loved his take on music so if i was on twitter and had listened to a song I would like tweet at him and once a, a recommendation actually made it on the show I was just floored. So there was a little bit of a conversation. We're very similar type people and uh his girlfriend is from up north so like this this northern girl thing I just have an affinity with mm-hmm. people from northern Ontario quite naturally and having met at one of the Shocktail parties after a fan expo festival of fear just we just click really well because they're very very cool like both emma and tomb and tomb specifically just has a really awesome production value in his mm-hmm. show and i was just really impressed with that so yeah mm-hmm. it was like probably a year or two previous that i mm-hmm. met him yeah. and love that fucking show and was getting into podcasting myself mm-hmm. here and there yeah and 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 so i turned to you there was method to my madness one you also knew tomb and I didn't tell Toom that it was going to be you. The idea was we were going to surprise him. <laughs> I was like, I just have someone who'd be perfect for this. What do you think? And he's like, oh, yeah, as long as it's still between five and ten minutes long. And I think even ten minutes might be stretching it. I think he really just wanted it to be five minutes, honestly. Yeah, we're, we're really aiming for six minutes just to get yeah. that happy. Yeah. Happy if you could imagine me t- trying to say anything in six fucking minutes. But By the way, you and I had like grabbed a drink we'd seen a movie together yeah we'd gone to see father's day so we we're gonna talk shop and talk horror and talk like cross posting perhaps or like just splitting tables or like i was maybe gonna write an, an article for ottawa horror on west because that's what we did just try to like keep everyone out of their basements as far as the horror scene in ottawa because there is like a really powerful horror scene here in ottawa but everyone doesn't know one another and no one talks to one another no one leaves their basements the venues were kind of spread out at the time. Mm-hmm. So it w- people weren't aware that there was a horror scene. Horror fans weren't aware there was a horror scene. And that was the whole point of Ottawa Horror was to shine a light in these little basements where we're all hiding. So I'd found Wes hiding in a basement. And so I was <laughs> shining a light in there. I was I was running around at Comic-Con with a torch telling people to look at me. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't hard. I had my work cut out for me. So we did. We, we went for drinks and started talking horror. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like we had a good rapport. Well, yeah, it turned into, because I'm not a huge drinker and I'm not a huge talker, but it turned into like four hours of nonstop talk about horror movies. Like mm-hmm. a lot of what you hear on the show is basically just the way me and Wes talk and just the way me and Wes have always talked. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that rapport really helped. But here's the thing. Here's the real kicker. And the point of this long ass fucking story about why we're doing Tombs of the Blind Dead again. It's because... If you go back to our original roster of episodes, the first within the first 10, every second episode, give or take, we started with The Burning. That was the first time where we said, this is going to be our own show. And the reason why we made that decision, why we moved away from Tomb, is nothing that Tomb did. It just became a matter of the waiting game became too long. Tomb is an extraordinarily busy dude. He is doing a lot of work and he's spinning a lot of plates. So his show kept taking a backseat to more projects that he was putting upon himself. And of course, his regular job, capital J job. But we kept recording these episodes. So we recorded Tombs of the Blind Dead. And that was literally the first time 
that we ever sat down together and recorded an episode. But here's the thing. If you look at that episode, I think we're hitting at 20 minutes, 20 some odd minutes for the episode. Yeah, we're, we're, we were rushing through that. And that is 20 minutes for our raw yeah, there's footage, there's basically. nothing caught. Uh, there's nothing cut, and I even added an intro to that episode to make it, it a little longer to just make it a little longer to get a, a little bit more mileage for you guys. So we were aiming for six minutes edited down, not yeah. twenty minutes all told. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but we just were we were friends, but we I would say we weren't really that comfortable with each other. We didn't know what the show was. No, and like I. I don't like having people in the house, and yeah. that was happening. And, yeah. Um, but we did know we got along really well. We sounded good together, and other people that had sat near us knew how good we sounded together. So we were confident in that way. We knew how we would sound together. We both knew that we knew enough about horror films to articulate what we thought about mm-hmm. horror films in front of a mic, and we weren't afraid of mics. Yeah. Which is usually the big curves that people mm. need to get over, let alone knowing each other and getting along which a lot of shows people don't even do that so yeah 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 exactly so when we when you go back and listen to those old episodes first of all the audio is not really what i want it to be we were recording out of a a lesser microphone and just like i said we were just the ebbs and flow of recording a podcast is something that we need to get used to up to and including what the fucking show is even is Mm -hmm. i mean i still don't know what the fucking show even is you know, you guys notice our format of like West Dead Air Night, Typical Idiot, You've Been Listening to Dead Air. The only thing that really carries over are those things, episode to episode. But that's us on the spot trying to like come up with fucking something. But Because ex- we don't script ourselves. Yeah. I mean, like I had like my handle and, and my sign off all hooked up, but saying it in front of another person, I felt kind of shy about it. So now I don't give a shit. Like, the ham that I am, I can be in front of Lydia because she knows. She knows. Yeah. (laughs) As we kept recording these episodes, they just kept not getting released. And you and I would get together. And it was getting to the point, for me anyway, where you'd be like, hey, we should record an episode soon. We should record an episode soon. Like, once a month, once every couple of months, like, we would do another one. But I started thinking, like, Why? Why? <laughs> See, Why? I'm a writer, so I'm like, you just keep doing it. You just keep doing it, and eventually, four years down the road, someone might accept this stuff. Because, so, because I seriously didn't care where they ended up. I knew they would end up somewhere, mm-hmm. even if they ended up sitting on your hard drive for a decade. Then there would be that one fateful day where one of us would be like, "Hey, remember all those episodes we recorded? Let's do something with them." Whether it was going to be ten months down the road or ten years down the road, I didn't mm-hmm. care because I'm so used to. Oh, that's why fucking Prayer Light Eve exists because. Everything sits for a year or five, and then I'm like, well, I'm mm. going to publish these because I mean, something needs to happen. I knew something would happen with it. So I was very comfortable harassing you to record, even though there was no action. Although you coming from radio, that's a pretty instant fucking gratification model. Yeah. You you record something, and you're done. If and you record it. If you're not just yeah, live, right? Yeah, like, that's the thing. I mean... If you're putting something in the can, it's not going to sit there for 24 hours. Yeah. 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 So I was used to things being, I've gotten way better. Working in comics, you learn to wait. You do. You learn to wait a long, long time. And you write whole things that will probably never see the light of day. And that's fine. I'm not mad. But in this case, I ha- and, and, and it is the case that I have so many times that always comes up is why wait for somebody when we're ready now? 
And so with no hard feelings to Tomb. No, it's not. So I hope nobody takes it like that because it doesn't like to me sound like that because I know the story. But if you don't know, if this is all fresh to you, then you might be thinking like, well, all these guys think he's such a dick. No, no, no. I love Tomb. I love Tomb. totally understood where he was coming from, from his production angle with the show that he was trying to cobble together. Yeah. Yeah. No, we love Tomb. And, uh. And uh, he knows that because, and I always give him credit as the first dude for me that said yes. Because sometimes all you need is one person to say yes. He's one of the few people I'll hug. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so that's kind of where we were at. And so I said, well, we can do this. I have a website. I don't know. I, I, I have a website. I don't even know what I meant by that, except for like, I'm sure I could put sound on it somehow i don't know i didn't know it was me googling like soundcloud okay fine that's what people seem to use i'll use that but i didn't know at the time but if i could just drop a fucking link into a thing and make a post yeah i was like so what do we need we need intro music i know someone that knows a lot of fucking bands lydia (laughs) as like ask one of your friends to help us out and they did they came through for us it it I I I have an a friend of mine who's an extraordinarily talented artist. Can you help me out? Can you d- draw some characters for us? Get some stuff done for me. Make things look good, as opposed to just kind of crappy. And let's release our first episode. And I just think that now, with all this accumulated experience, what we did a disservice to was Tombs of the Blind Dead. We didn't even learn those characters' names when we did that episode. Listen to it. We're just like the guy, that guy, the dude. I'm still fine with that, though. Not me. You know what I mean? Not me. Yeah. I don't get hyper-analytical when I'm watching a movie. Sure, I take notes, but it's mostly just to keep myself in chronological order because I'm not going to regurgitate Wikipedia. And if we've ever been guilty of that, please let me know so I can flagellate myself with a whip of hooks. Right? (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. So I do I do take notes, but I'm not even I don't care if we're like the blonde guy, the mustache guy, Barney Rubble, you know, I'm fine. Sometimes that. I'm like that for sure. There's definitely days where I am, but I'm not this time. Never again for Tombs of the Blind Dead. Yeah, we spent twenty minutes delaying recording this to find out the character of a fucking one person in the first Tombs of the Blind Dead movie. Yeah, I was like, what's her name? Anyways. Yeah, it was awesome. All that being said, is there is a little something that we're going to start the show off with. Which you- is an amazing excitement for me. <laughs> so, like I said in that long story, the first episode of Dead Air Podcast is an episode without Lydia. And it is an episode where I'm talking about Bone Setter, a movie I did not like. No, and to the point that, like, I've never heard this episode, guys. You're going to get to hear it. I'm going to actually be tuning into it moments before you do. Mm-hmm. So when you're done hearing it, the reaction of yours <laughs> and mine will be shared. Yeah. But I did know enough about this to know that Wes did not like this movie. Uh, I refer to splatterpictures.net. Yeah. And we talked about a rating system because that was one of the things when we were first planning our shows. Are we going to have a rating system? We're both like, nah, no, rating system sucks because fuck rating systems. But then I was like, well, we could rate them uh, in negative terms as is this movie better than Bone Setter? (laughs) Called them Nega Bone Setters. Nega Bone Setters. So like, if it's really, really bad, it's a horrible movie, Wes hates it, it is 
got zero bone setters. If it's got any merit whatsoever, a decent lighting, it's got one nega bone setter. Yeah. So that brings it out of the realm of that badness that mm-hmm. is bone setter. So then if it's got like a name character or like a, a star or, you know, good soundtrack, it's like two nega bone setters. If mm-hmm. it actually has a really interesting plot, three nega bone setters, yeah. you know? And then you get to something like Condemned, which I love. That was like a five plus nega bone setters right there. So <laughs> the, like that was the rating system I had proposed. Never made on the show, but once in a rare while, we will joke about nega bone setters, which means <laughs> nothing to anyone. Like that is the ultimate in joke. Yeah. 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 That's what happens when you work on something, when you are a maker of things, you get maker of things inside jokes like with the- Blood uh, Ranch. Two nega bone setters on a good day. That would probably, like, yeah, no one else even knows what we're fucking talking about when we say nega bone setters. But anyways, I thought that I would have you guys listen to it. I don't like it. This is almost like me showing you a picture of my bent little dick, which is the pilot episode. <laughs> which is the pilot episode of the podcast. Oh, I can't even keep your shit together. Because it's not the idea of your bent little dick that's funny to you. It's the fact that this is the pilot episode of the podcast, which I'm about to listen to right now. Go ahead. I recently got my hands on the 10th anniversary DVD copy of the Canadian indie film Bonesetter. It's about a bookworm single father named Kyle. He's a librarian in a small town of Munster. He goes about his day getting picked on by men who seem way too old to be pulling the schoolyard bully routine. All that changes one day when a woman comes into the library looking for information on an old Quebec legend. She's a single mother herself whose son's recently gone missing and blames it on Bonhomme Satur, or the Seven O'Clock Man. He's basically a boogeyman based on a 19th century Quebec legend about a man who traveled from town to town in the evenings, setting people's bones back into place. The bone setter was apparently once just that, a man who traveled from town to town in a cart, setting people's broken bones back into place. He was suspected of kidnapping children and was eventually killed by a group of townspeople. The legend says he comes back every few years to steal children and kill them. Under no circumstance must you panic over this horrible, horrible situation of countless serial child abductions. They start to realize how many children have gone missing lately, and it's a race against time to stop the 7 o'clock man who will sacrifice the children on the seventh day of the seventh month. Pretty obvious what's going on. Our children are going missing and there's only one logical answer. Now, before I get into criticizing this too heavily, I understand that we're dealing with an independent film and you're not always getting the biggest budget or the best professional actors or special effects. Most of the time, you're just dealing with a small group of people trying to make a movie any way that they can. But holy hell, the entire movie, characters just go through their dialogue as wooden and uninteresting as humanly possible. I've never seen anything like it before. He just disappeared. Get a grip, Jackman. We gotta figure out what we're gonna do. Yeah, Jackman, get a grip. No need to get all crazy there. Even when the children are getting snatched up and people are getting their stomachs punched through by a giant ghost in a top hat, nobody is even a little convincing in their roles. Even when Kyle's own daughter is eventually taken, he just spits out his dialogue and it's on to the next scene. You don't mean to say that you think that the bone setter is responsible for kidnapping these children. My son 
is one of the missing. The rest of the movie is plagued by bad lighting, odd music choices, and some weird plot decisions. Like, why did the bonesetter kill a stranger in a dark alleyway that had nothing to do with his child-stealing plans, but leave Kyle alone when he was actively trying to stop him? Get a grip, Jackman. We gotta figure out what we're gonna do. I did like the overall look of Bonhomme Satur. He really reminded me of that picture of Lon Chaney from London After Midnight. Boom! Roasted! And they do have a pretty amazing cameo by Troma's Lloyd Kaufman as the town's mayor. As your mayor, I assure you that the situation is going to be well in hand. Towards the end, they had some shots of the inside of an old barn that actually looked pretty good in the minimal lighting. But sadly, I'm all out of good points. Bonesetter had an interesting premise, and I really wanted to like it. But it's just unwatchable on so many levels. Seriously. This thing is terrible. The box set actually comes with a sequel, Bonesetter Returns, but I couldn't bring myself to actually watch it. And I don't recommend watching this movie even if you're somewhat curious. Get a grip, Jackman. We gotta figure out what we're gonna do. I'm Wes Snipe, and you've been listening to Dead Air. Get a grip, Jackman. Get a grip, Jackman. I just want to play that over and over. I'm going to have that as my new fucking ringtune when I wake up in the morning. Oh, my. Um, yeah, I know. I enjoyed that. And I can, I can, your, your, your hatred for that movie doesn't quite seep through. But you know what it reminded me of is a lot like um, an episode of How It's Made. <laughs> you want to know something? I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, popular, popular mechanics for kids. It's like a PMK episode. It, rhymes, it is like PMK. Yeah. I'm in full radio mode. I'm not there to really offend anybody. And let me tell you something. You know how you hear a lot of things about, oh, this thing was saved in editing. Thank God for the editors because they saved it. That's edited down. I remember when you were listening to it, you had sort of made an offhand. I thought it'd be longer. Tomb cut stuff out. Yeah. Um, Which I'm happy about. And I had some of the sound clips in there. Like, obviously, I'm reacting to the get a grip thing. So I definitely had that present. In there, but and I had the Lloyd Kaufman thing in there too. Yes, but yes. I didn't have any. All that other stuff is all Tombs wizardry. It is amazing wizardry. I like the sound, but I like a lot about it. And you were crueler, I'm sure. So I don't know what he would have cut out, but it it is edited nice and tight. Yeah, I wanted to make some sort of jokes about tight, but I can't. <laughs> I can't. It's like mega bone setter tight. <laughs> Yeah. But this is exactly why I have hinged on Brett Kelly films for 100 episodes. Have we done one? No. No. I have only seriously contemplated doing one once, but I didn't want to put you through that. I, I'll tell you, for our anybody who listens to the show that thinks I just like everything, there you go. <laughs> we even... Crossbearer was almost like the closest thing to Bonesetter that we would have ever contemplated. We ended up not doing that for the show. Yeah, and it was funny because I think that was literally the first time I ever came to your house was when we watched that movie together. And I don't know if we ever seriously talked about doing it for the show. Yeah, we did. Yeah, And you were like, no, because I don't want to be unnecessarily cruel to a filmmaker. Yeah, and you want to... When we can avoid it by not doing the show. Especially because there's one scene where I just want to really lay into him about speaking through your characters. And it makes no fucking sense. And it's awful. It's awful writing. Yeah. And you're bringing your film to a screeching halt to make some kind of fucking Twitter rant. 
within your fucking film anyways. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, but that's the sort of thing that we wanted to avoid. We were at that time just feeling out what are we going to do for yeah. the first, like the shaping episodes, like the first 10 episodes of our show are kind of going to shape where we're going because we're not going to start doing these sorts of movies and then end up covering only Friday the 13th movies. Or we're not going to start out with those sorts of slashers and then get into like existential 70s fucking films that are only barely horror yeah. And it's funny because I really, really didn't know when I was doing spotterpictures.net, I, I didn't, I st- we still do, but when I was, when it was just purely a written format, if you notice that the, the horror reviews were called horror showcase, because I didn't really, I review things fairly, I always did, but I think, but um, I, I, I didn't want to just be like ranting. I didn't want to be yelling at movies all the time. And I guess if we started off with, too many things that I didn't like, then it would just be, that's the tone of the show, which is why, by the way, it was a mistake to do bone setter for the pilot episode because it becomes, Oh, I get it. He's making fun of horror movies and yelling about them. Yeah. That might get you clicks, but that's not who I am as a person. Oh no, not at all. And then the next 10 episodes will be like, where'd that guy go? Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm trying to like channel like angry video game nerd or something like that, but that's not, who I am. It's not who I am as a person. And I think that's the thing I hate the most about that clip is because I am listening to somebody reading a script, not being himself. And anyone who listens to it would not recognize me who knows me in real life. That's bullshit. And that's not what I want to make. So they got me here to keep it real. One, one of the things I'll say is that you do really keep it real. And like I said, my ulterior motive originally was that you had a built-in audience and you knew Tomb and you knew a lot about horror. I probably could have asked my roommate to fucking do this show with me and put a mic in front of his face. But I've told him recently, I was like, you put a microphone in front of your face, all you're going to do is make fun of me for 90 minutes. So I'm not ever going to do that, Scott. It's funny how roommates get along and don't get along at the same time. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, But yeah, and, and I can see that is sort of like, from your point of view, it's like, well, this is a no-brainer. Of course, he's going to take this segment because he knows Lydia can write about horror. He's mm-hmm. like read her Ottawa horror stuff, met her through conventions and stuff. So as soon as I say, "Yeah, this is my co-host," it would be like, "Oh, awesome!" And not only would it make it as a segment on the show, he'd be happy to have it, right? So, yeah, yeah, which is a shoe in. Um, and the fact that I had decent taste in horror films, and it wouldn't be like having a chick on the show. That would be like having a chick on the show. So I'm not going to be squeamish or giddy or, you know, uh, laugh uncontrollably. The things that I dislike in a lot of female horror show hosts aren't going to be found in me. So it would be like sitting down with gender neutral human beings Mm -hmm. that just happen to want to talk about horror. This is an inclusive and safe place. It is. And also the fact that I maintain to this day, and I know that like Lydia will refute this often enough, but I maintain that you know more about horror than I do. Which is a big fucking lie, but we know lots about different kinds of horror. That much I will accept. Yeah. Um, and it is a safe place unless we're conducting a horror experiment and I'm running you through with all manner of weaponry or locking you in a van and stuff like that. Throwing so, me off a boat, see if I can get to shore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that sort of fun stuff. Um, yeah. So before we go into the four goddamn awesome fucking movies that we're talking about today, yeah. I do want to have some thank yous because this is, in fact, our 100th episode. And it's not just, you know, as much as I treat it 
as a 100th episode is merely the episode before 101, there are people to thank because it is a milestone whether I forget that or not, like I had a message earlier from Chris today. Thank, thank you, Chris, for congratulating us on our 100th episode. My sister congratulated us on our oh, 100th that's episode. That's so sweet. I'm sure if I logged online, there'd be somebody else mentioning it because it is really cool. And mm-hmm. But super thanks, first off, to Patron Saint of Plagues. Yes, absolutely. Specifically, Opie Saint for the music featured on our show. Our roommates have all been really good. Like, And I'm not even kidding about how they get along and don't get along with you and Scott. But like Matt has put up with the few times that Dead Air has been scheduled to invade his day and night or when mm-hmm. I have another roommate. Our families and friends are great support, even if they don't even really get what we're doing Mm -hmm. and whether they listen to the show or not, Mm -hmm. because some of them don't, but they still support it, which is cute. Mm -hmm. Really cute. But I get that a lot as a a writer. People are proud of me and support me, but haven't read my stuff. Huge thanks to Craig Chaos, which you mentioned, for featuring us on an episode of Uncommon Interests, and to Thomas... So if anyone's in Seattle, go catch one of his shows. Yeah, yeah. He's one of our favorite fans, and we talk on Twitter here and there, which I mm-hmm. really like, that we do talk about horror outside of just what he has to say that ends up on the show. Mm-hmm. Mad thanks to anyone that's listened or shared or let us know that they like the show, which is rare, but so precious when it happens. And I can only hope that even one movie we've covered has become someone's favorite movie, which happens with other shows I listen to. Tomb Dragomir had been and continues to be a huge influence. So keep it up, Tomb, yeah. and we will too. Our friends at Bind Torture Cast get huge thank yous, not only for being the unofficial or official sibling type podcast. I'd say official because we've had like cross talk, definitely, but... But personally speaking, a heartfelt thank you to Chris for being my favorite listener, my favorite human, and biggest influence, who also listens to me talk about the show in that shop talk way that only another horror host could actually talk. Like, we talk about our shows all of the time. Mm-hmm. And corpse fucking. We talk about corpse fucking a lot. <laughs> Hugest, biggest thank you to Wes oh. <laughs> for being the most gracious host and a great friend and the only person that I could ever actually picture sitting down to watch 100 fucking movies with i don't even usually like watching a movie with anyone you know what i mean but i'm really glad dead air exists and without all of that it basically wouldn't so i have no idea what else i'd have done with myself because we went to see one movie at the mayfair ages ago father's day Mm -hmm. we went just last night we did like the snake eating its tail to watch the void yeah so another Canadian Astron 6 involved feature, mm-hmm. which was just very, you know, looking back again. And here we are looking back again with Tombs of the Blind Dead. It was just very, very fitting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting all like emotional and stuff. Like I get all weepy when you said thank you, Wes. I was getting all teary. <laughs> well, when I was writing up my thank yous and thinking about it, I'm like, hmm, who should I do? Who should I? Hmm, who, 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 who? <laughs> and then you texted me and I was like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. No, <laughs> no but seriously, um, the very first biggest thank you is to you because, sure, I'd end up like flitting around like a grocery bag blowing around a parking lot in the wind. But I've called Dead Air Home for 100 episodes. And mm-hmm. normally you've seen me get fed up with projects. You've seen me mm-hmm. see things going in a way where I'm either doing all of the work mm-hmm. or it's just 
a crumbling thing that I'm not sure why people are, are continuing with it. Or other people get involved and then drop out. And then I start to wonder why I'm still involved in things. All of those things that have happened in, in work and life and friendships have never happened with Dead Air. I've just always been 100% stoked to be on this show. Hmm. So that's fucking crazy. I hate everything. <laughs> I think that you, 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 you do and you don't. Um, yeah, I mean, like, in, in terms of thanks, I also want to toss out uh, Chris Bagarin. That's my special little Chris. Uh, we got our special little Chris. We do. And uh, Chris has um, been incredibly gracious with doing the art for the show. I mean, I I am I can draw, but not like him. If you guys like Noose and Nod and all the little fun little graphics that we always have uh, for the website and for the show and for new projects that we'll, we develop, Chris has always been there ready to draw something at the drop of a hat he fucking bangs it out he's never asked me for a dime i try to offer he never says he wants money like it it, because work like that is costly and for that sort of turnaround you pay yeah and 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 he's just like the sweetest sweetest dude and uh one of my very best friends and uh and i don't think we give him enough thanks uh for all the work that he's done for the show and um yeah and obviously a big thanks to you lydia i mean the show could have died if you said no. <laughs> like, it, I would have maybe done a couple more episodes, been a uh, grin and bared it, as the magnet on my grandmother's fridge used to say. But I, if for us to get to 100 episodes, for us to get to 10 episodes, for me to be doing the thing that makes me happy, uh, you had to say yes, and you did. And uh, I'm getting emotional, but thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. It's awesome. <laughs> Stuff with the emotions. <laughs> but anyways. Do you need a cigarette? No, I'm just getting all weepy and crying. I'm emotional and people find it charming. <laughs> it, is, it is charming. It is charming. And it's funny that it, you don't smoke. I don't know why I offer you a cigarette. But I mean, it's all I got. I'm not usually very good with that sort of stuff. So what do we got next for them? Episode 101. Okay. Episode 101. Yeah. But for now. <laughs> We will get to Tombs of the Blind Dead. Will it make you upset when we do Father's Day for our next episode because it was the first movie that we went to at the Mayfair? Papa, can you hear me? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, Tombs of the Blind Dead. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Today's show will be doing the 1972 undisputed fucking classic, Tombs of the Blind Dead. You wanted to call it a classic, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is really wonderful. And I'm glad that I did sit down and watch it because it was one of those movies that was on my list. And when you suggested it way back in the day, over two years ago, I jumped at the opportunity to watch it because I hadn't had a chance. I first got wind of it with that band, Hooded Menace. Uh, my roommate, uh, one of my roommates at the time was like a really big fan of the band. And he was like, do you know this Tombs of the Blind Dead movie? And I was like, no, I don't. And he said, or, or this band is named around it and like has songs about the movie. And so I, I, I listened to the band. I was like, oh, man, this fucking band's really awesome. I was like, right. I looked up the movie. I ordered it that day and uh, and I got to it. And for those of you who want to know, in the in the horror parlance, there are some series involving zombies that are undisputed classics that everyone talks about. Romero's got his Dead series. Fulci's got his zombie flesh eater series. And there's the Blind Dead series. So Tombs of the Blind Dead is part of four films. When we first did the first movie, we were only ever going to talk about that. 
going to make everything extra special and do three fucking more at the same time. <laughs> extra fucking special, he says. Extra fucking special, he says. <laughs> well, we're going to try and keep it tight because we're already like an hour in for our intro of our 100th episode. But, Jesus you know, it's, Christ. It's our birthday and we're going to gab if we want to, I suppose. We're going to spend, you know, a half an hour or so on each film, which mm-hmm. isn't going to be too taxing. But there is, unlike a lot of series, like, you know, okay, you take the first Friday the 13th. Uh, there is a story there that you could talk about. You could sum up those movies in like 10 minutes, mm. basically, uh, just as far as the point of view of Jason. But to follow the point of view of the Templars, the blind dead themselves, would take longer because it is more convoluted. And I think a far more interesting story that's going on in those four films. Um, they're not super cast heavy. I think that's why I enjoy the third film because it is it does have the smallest, tightest cast, mm-hmm. and it's a little easier for for me to digest. And it's a lot more like a Scooby Doo mystery. <laughs> it is. It I really, love that. really is. And um, the the first two and the th- the fourth film do have a little larger cast and like larger sets and stuff. Not that that's big and confusing, but it would take us that much longer to go through than would say summarizing the first three fucking nightmare on elm street films mm-hmm. where you can summarize the story of freddie pretty pretty succinctly yeah this absolutely. is a lot more fun it's true this movie's about the templars what the fuck are the templars anyway you know they were real right you definitely know that yeah they're definitely real which is <laughs> cute because in the box set there is an informational pamphlet that has about a, a three page about a, a three thousand word essay on the origin of the knights templar mm-hmm. and i'm flipping through it and i look at the footnotes and the bibliography that he had used and there's books sitting off to the side that i had pulled out this morning <laughs> um elixir in the stone the beige net book is notable that's the one that i had picked up to flip through this morning and my Satanism and Witchcraft book I had picked up in case it had anything to do with the Templars. I'd known about the Knights Templar from my mom, who was very heavily into comparative religion and Gnostics, forgotten books of the Bible, and sects, uh, offshoots of Christianity, specifically those that were persecuted in the burning times. Mm. Which makes my mom sound like some sort of scholarly person, but no, she's just a regular lady. One of the things that I always was like unaware of with the Templars was how far-reaching it was. Mm-hmm, I did too. I to me when I first knew about them, and it, it was just as a oh, did you know that these there was these militia, these holy militia that used to roam around, and I thought it was just England. It was like an England thing, and I didn't realize that what you had here was a, a, a group that yes, England, but France, Germany, Portugal. All over the fucking places in Europe. Mm-hmm. And... Into the Orient and back. Yeah. yeah. And became independent, wealthy, a, a power, a world power. That was the one thing that I hadn't known until adulthood, is that they, they were independent of, of any governance. That's one thing I hadn't understood about the Knights Templar that I had known growing up and read about. So it is kind of terrifying, and it kind of makes sense as to why they were finally, you know, persecuted. Excommunicated and rounded up, especially in France, where you have the Pope and and the king working against them. And then all of a sudden, all of these strange stories that people confess to under torture Mm -hmm. about denying Christ and worshipping a devil named Bahamut and... Spitting on the cross and, and, and... 
killing virgins. My number one favorite story is how they had a vow of chastity, couldn't rape virgins, so they just stabbed them all with their swords to make orifices that they could have sex with. So they wouldn't be... Felt like it doesn't count to them? No, because it's not a a vagina. It wasn't penis and vagina thrusting. They just fuck wounds. And I don't even know where I heard that story or how to look it up. Because I'm not going to look up wound fucking on Google. No way. (laughs) She's just like fucking... (laughs) Oh, man. My my search history is way worse than that. But still, it's not something I want to look up. So, like, those crazy accusations were what had them excommunicated, banned, dissolved. A lot of sects simply changed their names. So Mm. they did persist as an order, but in secret. And some of them were actually executed. Not like the vast cleansing. It's not the way that the witches were executed during the Inquisition. But they were persecuted under the Inquisition. Yeah, and there was a big purge of them. And so that's what happens when all of a sudden you have people who are forbidden to have any sort of wealth, but then also their organization allowed to have wealth. And then you just end up with an army that in its prime was considered some of the finest warriors that anyone had ever seen, who are also massively wealthy, who are massively influential. Sounds like something that ruling powers would want to get rid of. Like Amway. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. My favorite thing that I also didn't know about the Templars is the, the, the length of time they went through where they weren't, they didn't fight. They would yeah. be, come in as like scare tactics mm-hmm. and they wouldn't want to fight. They were becoming very lazy. And mm-hmm. I thought that was super cool of them because they're just like come in and people are like, oh my God, it's a Knights Templar. And they'd be like, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yawn. Just look at our grandiose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have swords. We have swords, white Dueled cloaks, looking swords. pretty good. Yeah. Got crosses on our chest, probably holy. Perfect haircuts. Perfect, yeah. Yeah, all we have to do is sit here and look good, and mm-hmm. you guys will run in terror, and they didn't even have to fight for quite some time, which I think is, is super cool. <laughs> I think that's a super cool, lazy way. And someone else in that, I think it was in that pamphlet, had likened them to stormtroopers. Yeah. And they would have struck people as a stormtrooper elite. Definitely, except that they weren't under any rule. Mm. In Star Wars parlance, that would be a death trooper. A death trooper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is terrifying. It's a terrifying idea. And I can see why the church turned on them as violently as they did. Absolutely. And as you can tell, the Templar story is fascinating and can easily capture people's imaginations. And it uh, captured Amando de Osorio's imagination. He is the architect of the Blind Dead series. And in 1972, released Tombs of the Blind Dead. Osorio had only done a few films beforehand, like The Black Flag, which was like a propaganda short film. Uh, he did something called like The Cowboy's Tomb previous. So he had like this little tomb theme and he was a horror fan. And he did the Dracula's niece or niece of the vampire, something like that. Yeah. And he was sold on the horror genre. Mm -hmm. He was like 30 before he started making films too. So he wasn't like this young upstart. Mm -hmm. He moved to Madrid when he was 30 and started making films. So I thought that was particularly cool about Osario is that he was no spring chicken Mm -hmm. and then fell into horror. And then Tombs of the Blind Dead was such a huge success that he stuck with the genre. Yeah. Apparently on his death, he had like 29 or 30 some or more films written and ready to go that he never made. Yeah, sometimes people just find their angle a little later in life. I mean, Stan Lee 
made Spider-Man after he was 40 years old. But back to this fucking movie. What is Tombs of the Blind Dead even about anyways? It's about being a young girl full of moxie, piss, and or vinegar, jumping (laughs) off a train and just deciding to spend the night in some abandoned ruins. We talked about this in the first fucking episode. The original... By the way, there is an English cut and a Spanish cut. We're going to be watching the Spanish cuts for these films uh, whenever possible. So there are like me watching both of them and making fun of one or the other and wondering why they would make what cuts they made in the English ones. But yeah, Mm. you could have cut this until it becomes Revenge of Planet Ape. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah which is ridiculous. Yeah, for that's those, a ridiculous thought. For the well, I mean, like they did it to Doctor Butcher, where they just completely cut recut a movie and it's now something else. Uh, yeah. So originally, well, not originally, but they there was an idea about recutting this film to bank off of the Planet of the Apes because they look vaguely ape-like. Vaguely, maybe ape-like, <laughs> I guess. And so do some narration, recut an intro, cut out all the instances where they're not zombies or mummies all the flashback scenes all the flashback scenes basically and then have them apes they're apes they're apes they're apes everybody that was their idea (laughs) ridiculous i can see why they would do that they do not look like apes but either suffice it to say the spanish versions are the best versions the second the second that they tell me that there is cut scenes in the english versions the english versions go in a toilet there's once in a while where a, a good cut makes a lot of sense. There's movies I would love to recut, mm-hmm. and but whatever, you know, the the English cuts of these make no sense. It ruins the films. Mm-hmm. Even the titles look cooler in Spanish. So oh, hell yeah, take oh, that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So we we're introduced to the characters of Elizabeth and Virginia, two nubile ladies at a spa. And then in comes Roger, like the biggest circle ever. Except here's the thing that's confusing about this introduction to these characters. And I'm wondering if it's just something lost in translation. But Roger is not Virginia's boyfriend. And he's not Elizabeth's boyfriend either. And yet he's wearing a matching bathing suit with Virginia. And they seem to be smitten with each other. But we also know through a a ridiculous flashback. About the the, the, the the women in boarding school, that uh, these two ladies had a, a tryst of their own and were young lovers. And now I suppose they've gone away from school and Elizabeth seems to still have feelings for Virginia. Virginia seems to be there with Roger, but is she jealous of Roger's flirtation with Elizabeth or is she jealous with Elizabeth flirting with Roger? I think that it's both. And she's very deeply confused. And it's something you would not get from the English version whatsoever. Because the English version starts with a flashback to the Templars. Yeah. So that's the huge intro you get to this story. And then mm-hmm. poof, you're in Lisbon. And you're in this resort. And there's what is proposed to be a couple. And her old friend from college just sort of bustles on in. And her boyfriend seems taken with the friend that he just met. And invites all three of them camping. And and Virginia's, like, not very impressed with any of this, so she does seem jealous. Mm-hmm. And in, in it the, does sort of come through in the Spanish one, even though you know that the girls were lovers, because they cut all of that out yeah, of the English cut, one, which yeah. is a travesty and ruins this whole dynamic. So you could easily, if you're not paying attention or watching the English one, you would think that she's jealous of Roger hitting on Elizabeth. 
But that's not it at all. I think she's just conflicted. She's like, okay, I've got this guy I kind of like and this girl from my past, and I kind of don't want anything to do with either of them. Yeah. It's crazy. And this results in Virginia, like we said in the original episode, jumping off of a fucking moving train. Yeah. Uh, She takes the role pretty well. She knew what she was in for. Yeah. And I mean, and the train's not, it's not like a bullet train. It's not going that fast, but it would never occur to me. That I am so upset. And and it's like, okay, you're on vacation with this guy. She doesn't even look that upset, though. That's the thing. She's just sort of like, hey, is there any, does the train stop? And the son of the conductor is like, no, the train doesn't stop. We just go straight on through. There's nothing around here anyway. And she's like, are, there, are you sure there's no villages? Can you stop the train? I want to get off. And he's like, no, sorry, we can't. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and she doesn't seem upset, really, because she's not weeping. She's not crying. She's not giving them shitty looks. She just yeah. simply decides. Could you could you imagine being could you imagine being on a train with somebody and you're just hanging out the back of the train and you're sort of talking and looking off and then all of a sudden you see your friend just jumped off the train and she's like goodbye like, yeah. what is they actually display some emotion because they're like oh my god and they freak out yeah yeah and the, the train doesn't stop till it gets where it's going and we do yeah. have a little sneaking suspicion that there is a little superstition because of the yeah. way the conductor the older conductor yeah, yeah. talks to his son is like no we don't stop around here because there's some ruins which is by the way what virginia sees to get her to say, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a structure. Yeah, that, there that, must be a village. Yeah. That's why she jumps off the train, because she sees a, a structure. Yeah, jumps off and then finds herself in ruins. In Brazano. Mm-hmm, Brazano. This is, like, basically her just going camping now, where she's just going to wander around this place, these ruins, no one's around, and then she's just going to find a little spot, a little hovel. She's going to read a book. Gonna turn on the radio. Yeah, listen to radio. Get into her PJs. I don't know what plan B is. And are you ever gonna see this guy again? What are you gonna say to him? Sorry, I jumped off the train. Just wasn't feeling it. That's no. You know, just from the attitude of these people and the way that they're like, "Hey, I haven't seen you for years. Let's go camping." Okay, you know, (laughs) like they just so casual about everything. If they came to the ruins and were like, "What gives?" She'd be like, "Oh, hi, guys." About time you showed up. I know. It's so strange. <laughs> Pull out your bedrolls and let's all sit around the fire. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much established within dialogue that Elizabeth represented an older, more mature person, whereas Virginia was far more immature and impulsive. Mm-hmm. It probably has a lot to do with it. One thing that I will say that I like the English version a little bit better right here is that she's taking her clothes off, getting ready for bed and changing into her 90s. And she's hanging her clothes on what looks to be the remnants of a St. Andrew's cross. Mm. Where we were treated to this flashback where the Templars have their way with a virgin at a a St. Andrew's cross. They have her lashed to this cross, which is what I consider some of the best acting in this entire fucking franchise. Is this virgin that they're they're, uh, torturing on this St. Andrew's cross. But she's hanging her clothes on that St. Andrew's cross, which I think is great. And it's something completely lost. In the first one, which that was what spurred me to watch both of them recently, was seeing her hanging her clothes, watching the Spanish one. I was like, wait a second. We didn't even get to see that scene. So this doesn't, this is only interesting to me because I've seen the other one or anyone that's seen the English one or has seen this. And on second viewing, that might be interesting. But upon first viewing, watching the original Spanish cut, it wouldn't seem that she's hanging her clothes on something a virgin had been tortured on. That does seem strange now that you mention it. Mm-hmm. But 
She's never going to have time to relax too much. All that radio listening, probably listening to the jazz. Oh, I think it was the jazz and she's smoking a cigarette. You know, acting like no good Nick that she is. Mm-hmm. Impulsive. She doesn't even hear that these tombs are waking up. This begins what, when you're looking at these films all together, I've essentially broken down what these things are. These Templars, how they operate. Tombs of the Blind Dead is our introduction to the Templars is Templars, the cannibals. Very rat-like. Is eat blood, eat non-people. flesh. Just non-people. They come out of darkened holes at night. And then in the daytime, they return. You would assume that every night, which seems to be the case, every night that they they leave their graves, wander around. If people run into them, they get gnawed on. And then they return to their graves every night. Which would explain why Brazano's not only abandoned, but vilified and passed by and entirely ostracized. Now, Amando uh, de Osorio has commented several times over the years before his death that he not resented, but would get defensive about the idea that these things were zombies. He says they're mummies with vampiric tendencies. Uh I get it. Mm-hmm. I, I get his his idea. They do only come out. They do only operate at night. They're not uh, zombie like in a way, but there is something within this picture that is not present in any of the other films, and we'll get to it soon. But Virginia herself is going to be menaced by these things. She's screaming, she's hollering, she's trying to get away. These things move like fucking molasses. They going. do move like molasses, <laughs> but that, and every time I watch, it doesn't matter if I'm watching one or through four, it doesn't matter which one, doesn't matter which scene where they're, you know, moving in on somebody. Mm-hmm. I think I'm of both minds. It's like when I drink that coffee beer. I, I, <laughs> yum, coffee, yum, beer, ha ha, yuck. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I like this, yeah. but I like it. But uh, my brain is very confused. Um, and I enjoy that confusion. So I enjoy the confusion here where I'm like, you know what? These things are moving like molasses. You could probably trip them. You could probably push them over. You could run and they will not catch you because they do not move very fast. You can pick them up and toss them into one another like bowling clubs. But also on the other hand, if I were to see one of these things in real life, I would be fucking terrified fucking terrified they might as well be the nazgul and they do remind me a lot of the nazgul which are supremely terrifying these are horrific fucking creatures because skeletons wearing big cloaks chanting coming at you in teams Mm -hmm. is gonna be fucking scary no matter who you are if that was happening in real life no matter what sort of like ballsy attitude i'm having about pushing them over with a feather and bowling them over like bowling pins None of that would actually come true because it's not a cartoon and I would be fucking scared because skeletons don't walk the earth. That is absolutely a a, a fantastic point. I will say that to me, I love the, I love what these things are. Mm -hmm. I love that they're not just ghouls come back from the grave. They're Templars. There's, there's, there's talk of satanic worship. There is an intelligence and a method to their madness, even though these Templars the cannibals mm-hmm. seem to just operate as we feed on people to take their blood to essentially perpetuate their own damned lives. Why you'd want to continue like that? I don't know. Virginia tries to GTFO. She fucking hops and steals a fell horse, which 
we're going to see a lot of in this I franchise. I really enjoy that. And every time in my notes that would happen, uh, there's an exclamation point. And I, I'm very, very rigid with my allowance of exclamation points. You don't want to be too excited. No, never. But every time someone steals a horsey, I spell it horsey, and I put an exclamation point because it is that cool. And it's that mind-blowing because, like, these are scary beings with fucking undead horses. And I love the undead horses. The sound that they make, the look, the slow motion that they Mm. use. It's a fucking nightmare scene every time. I love, love, love it. But she jumps on one of these horses. Talk about a ballsy fucking move. Yeah, and it's crazy because, first of all, yes, the Templars are riders. They have horses. They use their horses. So while by themselves they're pretty slow... They can get pretty fast if you let them ride. Yeah, when They'll... you're running away from them. Because I said, like, you can just run away from them. You can just run away from them. But you'd have to run places where horses can't go. Because they will jump on their horses when they see that you're moving faster than they can slowly chase after you. Yeah. So, I mean, Virginia gets on that. But, like, how, like, one of the things that I that I was always kind of... Like, when you look at the makeup of the horses, they're basically just covered with a sheet. And they have some makeup around them with the exception of one of the films. But, I mean... How do we know that? How would she know that she could even control this thing, let alone ride it? Like, how do we know that? It's not going to just all of a sudden crumble into dust. Yeah, crumble into yeah. dust or she'll fall right through it. We don't know the nature of She's these. She's panicking and taking a chance. It's the way I always just sort of sum it up. They just see a horse, they jump on it, and it's not until they get a few, you know, kilometers down the road that they start to be like, oh, my God, this horse is dead. Mm-hmm. Holy fuck. And it, it, I mean, these in life, these would have been fully trained horses. They would have been able, they would have been used to the idea of people riding them. So I suppose it is just following direction. I mean, a horse isn't inherently evil. Virginia seems to know how to ride too. She has the right stance. Yeah, that's the thing too. The right. Like there's nothing in my brain where if I needed to get away from somebody, I don't care how panicked I was. If I saw a horse, I've never in my life looked at a horse and thought to myself, yeah, I could ride that horse. <laughs> really okay i grew up in a place where i I was taught how to ride a horse i had lots of friends that rode horses and there was horses there were some horses i wouldn't want to ride because they're assholes but (laughs) i yeah i've looked at a horse and be like i could ride that horse so yeah (laughs) totally different worlds here yeah yeah absolutely but that's what makes us such an interesting dynamic lydia but she does not she gets run down i mean she can ride a horse but these, just, they overtake they her. They just overtake her and they pull yeah. her off the horse and then they swarm her like rats, like fucking bees or something. And then the next time we see her body, it's just not on, just completely. It's not, it, she's not in pieces, but she no, just got just bites, bites all over. everywhere. All over the place. And this is what starts our plot. She is the first death and you think she might be the protagonist of this film, but she's not. Uh, we've seen that many times in horror before. Now... You know, everything from Psycho. Drew Barrymore. <laughs> yeah, Drew Barrymore to Psycho. Uh, uh, what, Drew Barrymore and Scream and Psycho and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. All these slashers. But um, now we're back with fucking Roger and Beth at the hotel. And they're going back because they got to find something. And they know that the Brazano has those ruins. Brazano, this town. Near the town, there are those ruins. Right? Yeah, and they're asking like their waitress about Brazano and the waitress is like, Oh, I can't talk about that place. No oh yeah, she like even that. drops her dishes. She's like, Oh and then yeah. and she's like, Nothing, nothing. They take horses, head on over there, and it basically comes down to the fact that like the the uh, the train which passes by there all the time sees her body lying in the field, they call the cops. And so now we got like fucking Inspector Clouseau on the case. 
Inspector Clouseau. Yeah, because uh, Roger and, and Elizabeth are meet this cop who tells him the skinny. Well, yeah, it tells him skinny. Not only that, like, it's Inspector Marcos and Oliveira. Two inspectors show up. And they're all like, so, you're Elizabeth Turner and Roger Whelan. And it's like, wow, we didn't even know their last names. That was crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah, Roger's yeah. like, how do you know all that information? Yeah. And Inspector, I guess it was probably Inspector Marcos, is like, wow, we may not have all that technology here in Portugal, but we do have telephones. Yeah. <laughs> He's such a he just, dick. Yeah, he just called the hotel that they were staying yeah, at. Yeah, he's and... like, we have a dead body on our hands. Yeah. So we're here to investigate that. Yeah. What do you know about it? So they've already done a hell of a lot of legwork, which is good because it saves us all kinds of time. Yeah, it would be kind of a shitty movie if we were spending the entire time finding out. Again, like in so many cases, that drives me fucking crazy in film, as I cannot stand when I know something that the characters are trying to figure out. And you're waiting and you're yeah, waiting. Yeah, I was like, waiting. just please, can, yeah. you, can you figure this out so we can get back to the fucking Templars? Like, I just don't care. This is really good writing, too, because not only does it speed it along, like, they go there to find her. We know that she's already dead, and we're waiting for them to find some sort of clue. Not only do they get a clue, they get two new cast members. Two new they cast, get yeah. all sorts of background, and then poof, we're going to identify our body in the morgue. So I'm the happiest girl in the world. Yeah, we're done. And there's like fucking creepy McBeardo there, like loves to like poke frogs. Like what the fuck's that all He's about? Poking frogs and like I like when they're going to like identify their friend's body and they're obviously emotional and a little torn up and freaked out being in a morgue and being told that like her body has been bit by several sadists like their heads are full of all sorts of shit and the creepy leering smiling mortician lifts a blanket on an old lady's dead body as a joke like yeah and and the look at his face like wait wait he's just so excited to mortify them yeah yeah and even when he he's like they're like no the young girl and he's like okay so he goes over and he lifts the sheet on her with that same look on his face he's like (laughs) and it's like whoa dude you like your job too much yeah and i that's probably why he works there guess so but even when he's alone with her dead body he's treats it with utmost respect which is you know just he's just being a deck he's just creepy he's just fucking creepy when he goes later and he's alone with the body, he just lifts the blanket to look at the bite marks again, like he's doing his job. Mm-hmm. Unless there's a scene missing. Or unless, like, he's going to do something to it. I always got the impression that he's going to, he's like, I'm here to do something. And then he gets distracted. But this is the part of the film that I'm saying, like, doesn't ever happen at any other point. Is no, it doesn't. You're after right. Virginia is bitten to death, and they even say that there's nothing necessarily fatal about anything that happened to her wounds are not fatal she died through other means was she raped to death no she wasn't raped to death there was nothing they had to ask that because they like rape in this film yeah but what so after um after elizabeth goes back to her mannequin making shop we get introduced to the absolutely gorgeous nina i love nina and she's absolutely gorgeous but i forgot her name entirely so yeah the assistant the assistant her assistant nina um we go back to froggy beardo man and he's doing his shit but what happens virginia comes back to life Mm -hmm. as what a zombie some sort of zombie like he's he's asking his canary what's wrong because his canary's freaking out in the cage and we see her rise Mm -hmm. behind him and She's covered in those bite marks. She has like a Y incision, probably. I know she has a huge scar across her forehead and where they stap- took her brain she, yeah, out. Yeah, like she stapled her head back together. Yeah, really, really grotesque looking. But the, yeah, this doesn't happen to any other one of their victims that 
yeah. in the rest of the franchise. Yeah, it never happens again, which is, you know, I, I listened with all due respect. If you say your characters aren't zombies, but they're coming back from the dead and they bite people and then those people become zombies... I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, dog. Like you can. I think she is a zombie. The Templars, I'm fine with believing that, no, they're not. They're sentient creatures. They are still who they were when they did these satanic rites. I'll give or you, what they're calling satanic rites. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Okay. They're high I'll level, take it. They're high-level zombies. Like a lich or something. Not even zombies. Yeah. They're immortal beings. Yeah. Anyways, mummies are not. Virginia is back to life. She kills Beardo, man, when he's fucking with that frog. And I'm like, good. Bite that motherfucker. Poor little froggy escapes and hops through a pool of blood. Some picturesque, there's some picturesque blood in all of these. Oh, it's it's 70s wonderful red. Yeah. Yeah. Really so is. after this happens, basically, it, 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 there's there's also um, a library scene with a, with a Professor Candle. And he basically... Uh, gives us the background about what these Templars are. Templars yeah, are. like when they're like, it seems our friend was killed in Brazano, and he's like, that's amazing. He's like stoked that the Templars are back, mm-hmm. only from like a very academic point of view. Mm-hmm. Morally, he's probably probably mortified, but he thinks it's awesome. When we're introduced to this character, that's where we're treated to the flashback sequence. That in the American version is the first thing you see in the movie. And it's edited horribly, so you got no fun. In this, you get almost like like sexual overtones to the, the aftermath. But what we're treated to is this wonderful courtyard where we have the true-to-life Templar knights mm-hmm. when they were still alive. Uh, wrestling a virgin in against her will and strapping her to a St. Andrew's cross and pulling this blood ritual with her as their sacrifice and they ride their horses around cutting her flesh mm-hmm. and then they they descend on her like rats mm-hmm. and they're just licking her blood it's all about the blood mm-hmm. for this movie anyways now when she dies and then that's the flashback the punishment for the templars they said after dealing with these satanic rituals was many of them were rounded up they were hung crows ate out their eyes so they're blind so they can only see you if you're making noise, mm-hmm. only find you, and they hunt at night. And that seems to be like you're saying, like they they have hunted at night at this abandoned village for centuries. Yeah, that's what it seems anyway. From what we're gleaning from this professor and just what we've seen of them already, mm-hmm. uh, I do like the blood sacrifice scene that's told. Because it's almost like you forget that it's a flashback because it is so absorbing to watch. Mm. And then it flashes straight back to the pictures he's showing them in the book. But during the blood ritual, they're like lapping and sucking at these wounds in a very sexual manner. And we see later on there's a juxtaposition of a man at a woman's flesh making those same sort of motions. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so now because of this um, Faustian deal mm-hmm. with the devil that these Templars made, they can continue their own existence. But there's a little extra thing that I kind of dug, which was this professor has a son who's a ne'er-do-well. Yeah, Pedro. And I like the inspectors just sort of bust in again. Yeah. here comes like, the... hey, you have a son named Pedro. We haven't seen him for two years, have you? Yeah, but, you know, he, he lives not too far from Berzano. And then they give the most, well, I think is, well, a very Scooby-Doo plot point where it's like, 
oh, Pedro becomes the old man in every Scooby-Doo episode at the end because it's like he they they surmise that he is using the Templars as a scapegoat to scare people away from the area so he can do his illegal activity. From the cop's point of view, that makes perfect sense. I can does, see why they went there. I mean, I suppose I would believe that as a police officer before I would believe mummies. Okay, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yes. So it's either Pedro, a known criminal, is doing criminal activity like raping and murdering, or there's mummies. So <laughs> that's a tough call. But if I were a cop, I would go with the smugglers. Now I just want to be someone who works at the police station that blames everything on mummies or tries to blame everything on mummies. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm sitting in the back of the police station and I just have like all these big ancient tomes and I'm always coming out of the, the fucking door like covered in dust and cobwebs and being like, according to this legend, it's like... <laughs> well, someone's mugged in MacArthur Park and you're like, did you know that there's thousands of bodies under that gazebo where other people are like, well, I'm pretty sure it's also in the market. It's like, oh, the, hist- the History Museum is having a special exhibit on Egyptian mummies. <laughs> it's like, these murders just occurred right when that happened. <laughs> yeah, you would be that cop. <laughs> it's like, he's not even a police officer. He just work- He just doesn't even work here. He's just hanging out in the back. It was an empty room. He filled it with books. What a weirdo. Anyways. <laughs> so... After we, so we're about to be introduced into another group of characters, or at least one or two, but not before we still got a fucking problem, Lydia. We got a rogue Virginia on the loose. Yeah, Virginia's just roaming the streets at this point. Is that what she's doing? Maybe, but she has enough intelligence because where does she go? She goes to Elizabeth's work. Yeah, to the mannequin shop. So she has to know. She has intelligence. You don't just randomly go from the morgue where you awake as a body and then randomly go to your best friend slash former lover's workplace. Mm -hmm. So she's got a brain in there. Uh, I mean, we can see it stapled back in, but there's intelligence is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Poor, gorgeous Nina in her seafoam green jacket is left to her own devices which aren't very fucking good, Lydia, because... Oh. <laughs> never, never are with these. Although the I've, I've figured the formula is the younger you are, the more wily you are and the more capable you are. Yeah, maybe. So she's young and she's not married, which makes her have like 10 points more intelligence than anyone yeah, else. It seems to be enough because she tangles with Virginia. And it's a very good sequence. I love this sequence quite a bit. I do not love... That Nina can't seem to figure out the door that she just locked. Yeah. Like, I can't. But she does make it to a telephone, unlike a lot of girls. You know what I mean? She knows how to operate a phone. One thing I really like about this scene is the lighting. And it is sort of explained away because Elizabeth says, oh, they make fluorescent lights and signs upstairs and they need to test them. So there's like, or actually I think Nina does explain this earlier on, but... So there's red and blue and green lights flashing here and there on all these mannequins. So it's Mm -hmm. a really cool place to have a chase scene in a slasher moment Mm -hmm. of a horror film. It's pretty good. And uh, Nina gets the drop on Virginia, burns her in a terrible special effect. But It is a terrible special effect, but I like it. And it's very similar to another juxtaposition where near the beginning when Virginia is getting ready for bed she has a fire burning and the camera is positioned behind the flames of the fire mm-hmm. and they're superimposed over her naked body yeah so you don't really see anything you know? no and it works really well from a modesty angle it's our big fiery fig leaf but here we get the same sort of flames juxtaposed on top of her now dying 
body. Yeah, absolutely. When they get introduced to Pedro, Pedro's like a mustachioed sex fiend, it seems like. Yeah. His girlfriend, Maria, or the lady that he happens to be sleeping with right now, Maria. Yeah, through the whole thing, though, we couldn't figure out. This is the character whose name we had to look up. And she's played by a girl named Maria, and her name is Maria. But they don't use her name, I don't yeah. think, in the entire I don't think movie. So, so, yeah, Maria. Pedro, Pedro is, is like one of the many rapey men that we're going to be meeting throughout this fucking franchise. And he treats Maria like shit and he keeps snatching cigarettes out of her mouth. It's just, he's such a dick. He's such a dick. And also, I love the fucking conversation that he and Roger have where he's like, the police are going to blame you for this murder. We need to go check out where our friend was, even though they've already been there. But they need to do a more thorough investigation themselves, even though none of them are inspectors of any kind. But they got to go figure out what's up. And Pedro's like, I don't want to go. And and he's he retorts, yeah, I wouldn't want to go if I were you either. And he's like, yeah, so when are we leaving? And then off they go. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. But now we basically have our four cast of characters, our core characters, I guess, back to the tomb. But here's the big kicker. Nightfall is happening. That's what's not happening the last time they were there. And this is where they do find... I like how Pedro, being the smuggler that he is, has guns and starts handing off guns and booze to the girls. Guns to the men, booze to the girls. No, he's got his little switchblade. Yeah. Don't fuck with me, buddy. They don't even really know what they're waiting for, what they're looking for. But they do start finding more signs. For But, you know, not before, you know, Pedro and uh, Elizabeth go off together. Yeah, he decides he wants to take a walk. Yeah. And when Roger's like, I don't want to go with you. But wait, Elizabeth wants to, which is weird. Like, I want to go with the creepiest dude off alone into the graveyard at night. Sure. That I just met today, that is, that the police suspected was a rapist and a murderer, and you don't just come to those conclusions randomly. But it's the 70s, Wes. Girls just want to have fun. This is such a fucking problem with this movie, fucking Pedro. Like, it's gross. Because he rapes her. There's no other way about it. And does not view it as that whatsoever no and considering like it's not like um uh, it's a miscommunication questionable consent that's not what we're getting at he slaps her he tears her clothes off and he rapes her yeah and she's protesting wildly Mm -hmm. and the only indication that she gave to him that she wanted to go out there to have sex was she said you know i get a little bit apprehensive the first time and then she sort of admits she's a virgin Mm -hmm. and that's the only talk about sex and them having mm-hmm. sex that they have other than that he does just straight up rape her i mean true like i mean she was for all we know or what we suspect in love with virginia yeah so her being a virgin isn't problematic at all no it's no. understandable because yeah. she's just not into men that way yeah which is fair but and then pedro's like well no like yeah, it's fucked up. It is absolutely fucked up. She's it. calling for help. She's crying. She's screaming no. And he just slaps her a couple times across the face. Meanwhile, Maria is like trying to ply Roger with rum. Yeah. Which is so kind of adorable. You know, juxtapose these two things. Like, you know, one person wants to have sex with another person. They're taking it. Another person wants to have sex with another person. And she's just sort of like hinting at it. And yeah. not being angry when she gets rebuffed. Mm-hmm. Which is really pathetic when the two are juxtaposed, but um, it's even doubly insulting when Pedro tries to give Elizabeth a cigarette after the rape, and she's just like, 
doesn't want anything to do with him, doesn't fucking want a cigarette. And he's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it's fucked up. Man. It's super fucked up. But guess what? Pedro's fucking goose is cooked. Oh, thank God. And yeah. it's, it's warranted, too. I think it's kind of cute. I almost skipped over when they find the shoe. This is when they find the shoe, right before Pedro gets killed. Mm-hmm. Um, they do find Virginia's shoe. So they mm-hmm. do know that she was there and under some sort of duress because mm-hmm. she lost her awesome shoe. And Maria has the wonderful line of, I once knew a man that would only drink champagne out of my oldest high-heeled shoes. It was the only thing that excited him. <laughs> so I guess that makes us feel better about the whole rape we just had to watch. We get a little joke about another guy with a kinky fetish, I guess. I don't fucking get it. Yeah, it's very weird. It's but. very, very weird. And also, I don't feel like the discovery of this particular shoe is that much of a revelation. They did know that she was there. Yeah. And they also know that the body was found in a field. So here's a shoe. Here's her other shoe. You found one in the stairs a day earlier. Here's this one heading off towards the field. I mean, she was running. Guys, you should you know this. Yeah, there is certain macabre fascination though with the relics left over from a friend's death there was a guy that had died off a motorcycle and his motorcycle was parked at a garage really close to where i lived as a kid and not only us as kids being creepy little kids that we were going to check out this motorcycle a guy died on a lot of his friends were making pilgrimages to come and look at this motorcycle the car loads of them it was really weird now that i think about it but um they didn't hear Elizabeth screaming while she was getting raped, but they come running for fucking Pedro. Hold on, a man's in trouble. Yeah, right? It's unreal. <laughs> so there's a lot of instances of people not being able to hear other people getting killed or screaming. In That's song. true. And Maria and Elizabeth are now together, and um, Roger went to go see what the fuck was up. He sees the fucking Templars are up and about and very slowly making their way towards them. He's trying to run in. And meanwhile, the two women are fighting. This is the most uh, Romero that this movie ever gets, where you basically have people dying because in fighting, essentially. Basically, what you have here is this weird circle of jealousy. Roger is initially angry that Elizabeth went off with Pedro. And Maria's mad because of Pedro. And they all suspect each other of sleeping with everyone. And everyone's just saying they're not in a relationship. And they're just, it's fucked up. They all just met too, which makes it triply fucked up. And I wouldn't say it's the first only instance of infighting too, because that becomes a real problem in part two. Mm -hmm. A real fucking problem where it gets even more Romero Mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, this is where it starts with people infighting and people dying because of it. Mm -hmm. Because the girls are fighting. They've been locked up in this one house. And told not to open the door for anyone. Well, Roger is unloading his gun on the blind dead who mm-hmm. are coming after him. Mm-hmm. So now he's all out of bullets. Pedro is down for the count. And he has to go back to these two women that are now at each other's throats. Yeah. When Ro- Roger gets fucking his arm cut off. On his, trying to get in the door. Mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of scenes like this, too, where it's like... You want them to just walk up to the door, open the door, walk in the door. But instead, you get a 10-minute sequence where the blind dead slowly ravage somebody. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, you know, we've gotten a lot of really cool blind dead action, too, that actually gets recycled in other films. Yeah. Them rising from their tombs, them. And it gets recycled within this film, too. 
of them uh, coming after people on their horses just to like close the gap because they do move so slow. Um, we get a lot of really cool scenes of them coming and not at night on horseback through the courtyards of the city, which is really, really picturesque. And them coming slowly, slowly on Roger with their swords. Yeah. This is where when Roger comes in and I guess he fucking the first things first, like Maria gets fucking chomped on because she's screaming. Yeah. And while Elizabeth is tending to Roger, her fallen friend, just friends, everyone stop asking. He says that don't make a sound, don't breathe, don't do anything. They can't see you. They are hearing us. That's what's happening. And then he dies, which probably, I mean, it's like, it's just a flesh wound. But I was like, well. Shock and blood loss. Shock and blood loss. Like, yeah. I, 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 maybe a while ago I would have been like, he only got his arm chopped off. I'm like, okay. I've never got my arm chopped off. I didn't say horror experiment. Horror experiment. You want to chop my arm off and see how long I can last with without dying? No, shock and blood loss for sure. Roger kicks the bucket that way. And now that Maria's down for the count, the only one left is Virginia. And she basically, what this is, is a cat and mouse game. Is she, Can she get the fuck away from these dudes as they slowly chase her? They do have horses, though. They do have horses, but she does know, like, she's trying to be quiet. And there is mm-hmm. a really good scene right after she learns this very important information and sees Maria get, like, cornered. And they're all obviously paying attention. She whimpers, and three of them stop and turn around and look towards her. Mm-hmm. So she knows that he's very tr- right with this, you know, they hunt by sound. And they'd been told that they hunt by sound before by the professor in the little library scene, too. So it's apparent that she could probably sneak away from them, but it's like any sound that she makes, even the scuffling of her shirt on the brick wall is drawing their attention. And then she realizes they can hear her heartbeat. Yeah. That's a very well uh, film scene. There's a lot of things in this film that are written impeccably and filmed very, very well. And this heartbeat scene is really one of them where the whole story and lore and the mythology of these Templars becomes the linchpin to her survival. So she scrambles away, running past them, because they do move really slow. And then, of course, they get on their horses, which sucks for her. But she goes running through that same field where her friend had died. This time, instead of a train going by and seeing a body, they see a woman running. And the conductor's son can't help himself. He pulls the brake. And this comes one of the most frustrating fucking sequences I've ever seen in my entire goddamn life. Slippery Baby is what you called it in the original episode. This, I don't know, I have no fucking idea why, in the same way that Nina can't figure out a fucking door that she literally just locked, and it is not a goddamn fucking lament cube. She can fucking solve this puzzle, Nina, up, over, it's a goddamn latch. She can't walk, she can't move. You want to say, okay, okay, she's in shock. But no, seriously, she made her way all the way to the train. The train has stopped. All she needs to do is get on. She got herself to this point. It's not like that, you know, relief of, of safety that's mm-hmm. letting her give way of all of her faculties so she can't even stand anymore. That makes no sense. There's a lot of instances where these films come under fire for rampant misogyny and horrible sexism against women. Mm-hmm. Um, this scene is one of those things where saying that women are 
absolutely helpless. And the moment that a man is on the scene at all, they need to be taken care of. It's not that she even has a choice in the matter. Her body gives out. And, you know, I can deal with all the other sexist things. I'm looking at it in the context of the time the film was made. I'm looking at the context of the type of women that they are. I'm looking at the context of the formula I've created to help deal with this is that if you're you're young and spry, you think for yourself and you're more used to thinking for yourself. If you're older and married in, in a serial film, you're more apt to be helpless because your husband has taken care of everything for you all your life. Um, so that's sort of what these women are operating on. But this one is especially, and I hate using the word problematic because everyone uses that word way too often these days. But this is especially problematic because... Her body gives out, and I yeah. hate it. And I, I would hate it because little kids pull the same thing, and calling it slippery baby is exactly what it is. When a kid or somebody doesn't want to do what you want them to do, they just let their body go. And it's impossible to wrangle. You might as well be moving a dead body at that point. Yeah. I honestly, and, and because of that, because of the fact that she can't fucking walk under her own power now anymore for no reason. And she, it takes two able-bodied people to pull her into that fucking train. Over like 10 fucking minutes. The Templars catch up and everyone on that train is slaughtered. Yeah. When there was ample time for her to get on the train and them to continue on their way. Mm-hmm. They might have had to deal with the Templars uh, attacking the train with their swords. What sort of metal dragon be this? Exactly. That's what I'm picturing too. <laughs> And you probably, could probably kick one of their bony old arms off if they were hanging on. Yeah. Whatever. Kick yeah. one of those horses right in the head. That's yeah. what I would do. But, like, they could have gotten away. But, no, we get ten minutes of this helpless bitch. And it's so fucking aggravating because that is what she has become because of the world that is created here. Mm-hmm. When absolutely no human being would behave like she does yeah i hate it i hate uh, like me scene. like me too i hate it absolutely it's so fucking frustrating you're screaming at your television to use your legs get the fuck up you want that or you want the son of the conductor to just drop her where she fucking is and get yeah. back on the train and save yeah. yourself and everybody he, else he fucking gets skewered because of her yeah. and then she does nothing to help anyone she does nothing to help the fucking conductor who she doomed his son to fucking a bloody, brutal death. She does nothing to help the children inside the fucking train. She just curls up in a little ball and like the train goes to port and there's still Templars inside and more people get on the train and they get fucking slaughtered and then the Templars take over that village. Yeah. And, to, and she's just standing there screaming. Yeah. And I'm like, congratulations. It is literally your fault. I hate that girl. I hate Yeah. Her. And, and I was just like, I've never wanted someone more to die in my life in a film than I do this character. It makes me love the ending of this film, though. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, you want to talk about downbeat ending? Yeah, it is a very downbeat. Templars reign supreme ending. and take over yet another village. And this is very much in keeping within a movie from the 1970s that is dealing with a zombie-like thing, mummies, etc., however you want to paint them. This downbeat ending in which the idea is this plague shall continue and spread. Especially since we've established that apparently you bite people and they come back. Yeah. So that is it. But this was only the first in what would become a quadrilogy, as they refer to it as. Osario set in the table, but up next, 
Supper time. Supper time. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Return of the Blind Dead. I love that they don't try anything weird with the title. It is simply the Return of the Blind Dead or El Attack de los Muertos Sin Ojos. Or Return of the Evil Dead. That's the title that I don't like. No, I, neither do I. But you could argue that people shall be dead by dawn. Oh, my God. <laughs> 1973, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hot on the heels of the first one. Yeah. That's one thing I do like about these four movies is they all happen within the same decade. That's true. Now, what we it's not like Romero waiting like another 10, 10 years, 20 years in between sequels. Now, we had Templars, the Cannibals. This is what I refer to as Templars, the Warriors. We are still treated instantaneously to another sacrificial background scene. This is the first time in this film, in this franchise, that heart-eating is introduced. The exposure of a woman's breast, we've seen that before. That's like their MO. They're like, aha, we got her tied up. Get them titties out. Yeah, pretty much. And then stab them in the chest. Just sort of, there's not much ritual. It's clear to me that nobody really stopped to bother what... Any kind of satanic ritual might involve. They're just like, I don't know, just look at the sky like you're praying to something and they just stab them in the chest. Remove her heart, take a bite, drink the blood. Blood drinking is still very much a part of this as it was in the first one. Except now we're not just lapping up a body. We're drinking out of a bowl. We're eating we're getting a little bit more sophisticated. A little more sacrilegious because this is just a perversion of the Christian rituals of taking the body and blood of Christ. Exactly. Which now, is what you're supposed to do with the black mass, right? So. Yeah. So you have this idea of of the Templars as warriors, or I do. And this is because gone are them scurrying around out of burrows and gnawing people to death. They're straight up fighting in this version of this film. They're all using their swords. And they're not hunting every single night either. This seems to take everyone off guard because there is some um, retroactive continuity. Is that what the kids call it? Mm-hmm. Um, with this village is named a slightly different version of Berzano. I think it's Benzano or something like that. It's mm-hmm. a very similar named village, which I just want to pretend it's the exact same village. So they're not hunting every single night, and this must have taken the village by surprise because they seem to celebrate the anniversary of the killing of the Templars. Mm-hmm. And this is the 500-year anniversary, and this celebration has a name of Lakima. Lakima? Lakima. Is the name of the celebration. So everyone in this whole town is partying and, I guess, thanking God for having destroyed the Templars. Yeah, and also the fact that like the villagers themselves took part in rounding up the Templars, burning their eyes, so it's yeah. not so much crows. Plucking eating. the eyes out of the corpses. Yeah. They're what? blind because their eyes were burned. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be what they did, and they burned them until there was nothing left except a bunch of bodies in which they entombed uh, properly, as opposed to just like putting their bodies on a pyre and forgetting about them. But whatever. This town is like full of hustle and bustle. And drunk people, mostly drunk people, but they have like effigies of all of the Templars that they've hung up and they're going to be burning us so much straw men. Mm -hmm. We're introduced to uh, Murdo. I wonder what he's all about. Could you imagine if you were kind of like a shady shit character and you're like, my name is Murdo. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's like a really shitty evil clown name. And it doesn't remind you of like speaking shitty. It's like, 
almost close to the French for Mayo. So <laughs> it, his name is probably Poop. That's probably how it trans. I bet you his name translates as manure. Hmm. Poop liquor. But he is a bit of a poop liquor, but he also looks kind of like uh, Stephen King as Jordy Verrill. He does kind of look like that. You know? I mean, like this is going to be like the, not the first time we're going to see sort of a, a lame character. They call them the village idiots, but whatever you want to call them. This is not the first time that this is not the only time we're going to be introduced to a character, but this is the first time that this character is going to be evil. Uh, what evil? That's kind of like a strong word. He's shitty. There's shitty people in this town. Mayor Duncan's a dick. Um, yeah. You know, and they have... Um, I'll bet you Jack's a dick, but we don't know enough about him. Yeah. Apparently, he's some some kind of like ex-military guy, but they're bringing him here to be a fireworks guy. It's like, we're having a big celebration, so we hired you to do fireworks, and your fireworks are apparently the best in the land. Which I don't understand why they decide to physically and violently oust him from this town later on. Because it's all about a woman. It is sort of all about a woman, but like, why don't you just wait? He'll leave. You you hired him. He'll go away. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know this. Well, we, we learn pretty quick, but like Jack's got a bit of a past with Vivian, mm-hmm. who is the mayor's secretary slash fiance. Ew. I didn't realize that that was her fiance. I think I knew that she was employed by him, but fiance, mm-hmm. he, what is she doing with a creepo like him? Yeah. She could be with fireworks technician, ex-military, man about town, owner of a Jeep Jack. Or look at fucking Howard. You see the size of those eyebrows? Uh, Howard does like Vivian very, very much. Man, does he ever. And and he'll express himself the way only a man in this franchise can. Yeah. Yeah, eventually he certainly does. But he strikes me as a bit of a Spock character, not Mm. a love interest necessarily. So that all kind of comes out of left field later. I was going to say that he was, he's like very much old. They're both very much older than her anyways. But like, I was like, I was like, yeah, but that's, this whole movie is nothing but like really like old guys with like young, beautiful women. I mean, the governor's wife or girlfriend or whomever is sleeping uh, with him. I was like, wow, she's like. Or Monica's getting the moves put on her in another house across town Mm -hmm. by someone at least her own age. Yeah. So that's helpful. Old Juan, we've seen that guy before. Mm-hmm. I it's, didn't recognize him at all. I fucking recognized him instantaneously. Yeah. Old fucking mustache McRape face himself. Pedro. Yeah. From the original film. He's changed his name. He's changed his name. He's a different character now, but it's yeah. the same actor. Same I definitely actor. Uh, looked it up. Yeah. But... He's there too, and this seems to be like our cast of characters. Now, one of the big differences that I will say about this film, these warrior Templars, um, first of all, this movie has a tighter runtime than the original one, so we get to things a lot faster. We don't have to wait too long. By the way, I'm just gonna like, like, uh, well, I'm not gonna spoil that just yet about which one I like the most, but like, um, this one has a lot more action in it. This one is a lot faster paced. The Templars are faster. And the way that we get to the plot is a lot faster, but it's also very fucking confusing. There's a lot more people involved. So many people. And not only that, but if you're watching the American version, it seems as though the Templars awake for no reason. Because after their little love rendezvous, Vivian and Jack have like a reconciliation, I suppose. Yeah, seems make like out in the graveyard. Make out in the graveyard like you do. Murdo himself fucking shows up and warns them that the Templars will be back this day, this night. It's a special night, their 500-year anniversary. So again, we are. it's this new lore. These like that's how come I'm really convinced that these are not the same Templars, and because of the Templars being so far reached, there could be multiple sects. Or maybe I think it's the exact same ones. The town is named very similarly. 
I think it is the exact same group of Templars Mm -hmm. just behaving however they want to. And it's just appearing to us because it's the, they're just doing whatever they want to do. Mm -hmm. But we are looking at it through some sort of historical warped historical lens and applying mythologies to their actions. So I think it's just, it's the same group of Templars. I like your theory mm-hmm. that they're different sects, but mm-hmm. I think they're just the exact same. I feel like Osorio was really having this mentality of like, I don't know, whatever. The first Tombs of the Blind Dead, he wanted to make it and holy shit, it did well. It did gangbusters mm-hmm. and it really brought Spanish horror to the forefront to a lot of people. And so he's like, all right, we'll make another one. And then... You know, in that case, he maybe he looked at his original film and said, you know, I didn't really like this thing or I didn't really like that or I didn't talk about this much or, you know, he had he definitely had more money for this film. Definitely had more money. It still seems that it's the blood of a virgin spilt in the grounds and the graveyards that bring them back, though. It is still that. Yeah. So um, and, and but if you watch the American version, that is omitted. Yeah. Very strangely. And so how it plays is it's like fog rolls in. Murdo's like, oh and, yeah. And Murdo's like freaking super excited. Out. He's a little bit of a Renfield freaking out in the graveyard. Yes, absolutely. He is very much Renfield. And he's even kind of doing the same types of like, the only thing he's not doing is eating flies. Yeah, yeah. Same sort of like physical presentation. Perhaps physical. I could have a cat. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for that line from Murdo. Really, truly. He's stoked. That- yeah, he's really stoked. But the Templars don't give two shits about this motherfucker, but they don't kill him. And if you leave out the virgin sacrifice that he gives where he knifes that woman and the blood hits the, the soil, it doesn't really make any sense why they don't kill him. But they don't in this case. I thought that they were just friendly and didn't want to hurt the village idiot because he's done enough putting up with bullying of the townsfolk all his life. Well, no, Lydia, no. And not only that, but they do kind of run him off with their fucking horses. But now he's like pissed yeah he's like how dare you i did all this for you and i don't know what he would expect he's like dude they're like shrivel up mummy man like what the fuck do you want them to a sword some jewels that's the thing and we'll get to that in the third film but like you know one of the big things about the templars how fucking rich they were and i don't really see any indication that they're rich in any of these films except for one well the horses are really dressed up Someone even points that out not too long from now well you have to get money to you need money to have a horse that's for sure even in those days so when the Templars start their ride, their ride to the village, because that's where they're going. They're they're specific. This is very much a revenge story on the Templars' part. They are coming back to the this town. This particular night, I think. Yes, yeah, very much so. It's like, it's like they are coming back to enact revenge on their 500th anniversary while everyone's burning effigies of them. And the Templars show up. It's an effigist worst nightmare but we can make a little stop on the way because fucking mustache make great face. <laughs> make a stop on the way because oh, we smell the sweet scent of virgin blood. <laughs> we do. Well, not so much virgin blood, but I mean, Monica and Juan are getting it on. And this is Pedro. And what's he doing? Coming to a woman's house in the middle of the night who they basically have like a vague relationship or understanding with each other with. Mm-hmm. He forces himself on her and then they're lying in bed together. She is completely upset with him. Oh, yeah. And he's smoking and he's trying to give her a cigarette. <laughs> Where have we seen this before? I guarantee you Osario is just like, I got a guy. I know exactly who we get to play basically the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's not too shocking it's shocking to today's audiences because we've spent a lot of time enacting a sea change in attitude so that women now know very clearly when they've been raped 
even by their own husbands. Mm-hmm. It was not a thing before, though. People mm-hmm. didn't question that. Mm-hmm. If somebody had accused their husband of rape, they could be laughed out of town. They could be hated. That could be ground for divorce. And then, you know, in some cultures, even today, that's ground for death sentence mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's just not the way that people were thinking. And that's not the sort of, you know, accusation that would have got flung at a man who you had any sort of vague relationship with. So it's in keeping, unfortunately, with the way people were thinking back then. And it's a really good reminder of, you know, why people have to have those conversations. And that the fact that a, a woman can be raped without it being like a textbook knife in the alleyway with a masked thug rapist. Mm -hmm. She can, and most of the time is raped by somebody she knows and somebody she's in a relationship with. So, but at this time that wasn't the the manner of thinking. Yeah. And when there's a knock at the door and then we think that it might be, oh, you know, like her mother or some shit like that. Pedro's fucking hiding. All that ends up happening is, uh, it's the fucking Templars. They bust in, they fucking murk Pedro and Monica steals herself a fell horse. Stop me if you've heard this one. I love, I love, it's in my notes as she steals a horsey with an exclamation <laughs> point. Cause I do love this. And it's again, I'm thinking, you know, hey, she knows how to ride, but how long, how far down the road did she get till she was like, oh my fucking God, I'm riding a zombie horse. Yeah. Especially when she needs to convince somebody that she's riding a zombie horse and he's just like, oh, having a good time dressed up your house, your horse really well. She's like, this horse is a it's a dead horse. It ceases to be. <laughs> yeah. Like I, she's like wants the town to be warned that the Templars have risen and are yeah. on their way to the village. She's a very, very sexy Paul Revere. She is the sexiest Paul Revere I ever did see. And I like that she doesn't just prove that her horse is dead by saying so. She shows him. So we get to see what's underneath the horse's uh, Yeah. And this pack. is the first and only time that we... Because n- normally when the horse is... You don't need to show a close-up of a horse's dead face because you got a blanket or a sheet over them. So they're just kind of billowing in the wind and they look kind of dead and otherworldly, but you need that close up to prove that underneath that blanket. So there's some good makeup here. It looks cool. I like it. Um, she's mortified when she's like, Oh shit, I didn't realize you were that dead. And, <laughs> and, uh, and of course like this brings more Templars to it. And then when he, this this uh, train yard station guy, he calls the mayor and tries to get shit. But like fucking, what was it? Bert, Bert, one of the guards who's like over at the party doesn't answer the fucking phone because they're too busy like watching the festivities. Everyone's just having a good time. But what I dig about this is we don't have to wait too long for everyone to know that something's up. I would have hated this if this was kind of like a killer clown scenario where like no one just believes anybody and you're just watching like people die. It's like the mayor and all of them pretty much get on board pretty quick once they realize that shit is actually going down. After, of course, they're like beating the shit out of Jack. Yeah. For because I mean, this whole time, I mean, Jack is relentlessly flirting with Vivian. Both both the mayor and Howard, his like manservant, I guess, is uh, is in love with this woman, and so they don't fucking like it at all. So they're gonna like beat the shit out of him and run him out of town. But the second shit changes, like, it's funny, the second shit changes, like, like, not only are all the people that beat him up, like, on Jack's side, but they're, like, working with him and listening to him and, and, like, and it's like, that's hilarious. Like, an hour ago, you were all beating the shit out of this dude. 
Yeah, because it took like six of them to think they could almost kick his ass. Yeah, he's a very spry fighter. Like, he's very good. Yeah. So as soon as like they know that they have to all kind of work together, that he could take any of them at any moment, mm-hmm. so they better respect him, I suppose. I don't know how this sort of thinking works. But... Me either, but it, but it's very, it seems very macho. So, like, everyone, all these dudes are like... Like, that's the thing about the... Like, the guys in this in this film franchise... They operate in a way that I, as 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 a as a male living in 2017, don't comprehend either. No, it does exactly. like, but I could. I I'm just looking at them. I'm like, it's all so macho. It's all no one's talking. Like I'm just, I'll show him. I'm gonna beat him up. That's what I partially didn't get about why they need to run him out of town because yeah. he's in love with a girl and she might take off with him. Yeah, well, absolutely. Bummer. Right. Yeah, you know that's life, but. You know, being born on the cusp of that sort of attitudes and growing up with male friends of my parents that still definitely operated and thought like this, I recognize it. And I've known people like this, so it's not entirely foreign, but it's still like, yeah, being a person alive in 2017 um, with a little more modern thinking than this, it does seem awfully machismo and barbaric and... Yeah. Words and yeah, it's like they're cavemen. They like, are I, like cavemen. Like it's crazy. I feel as sorry for the men, the depiction of men in these films, as I do for the depiction of women. Well, it's not relatable at all. No. And I think honestly, the, the if if people were to like criticize this film franchise, these are the weakest elements of all of them. The strongest elements are the Templars and the, and the mummies and all that kind of cool shit. And I like the music and I like the aesthetics. But and and you know obviously the women are beautiful. I think it's just as fascinating as an artifact of those times. Though. Yeah, it is. There's a it lot is. of people that can't handle that and don't like that. Mm-hmm. They they don't like that they, these sorts of people exist as characters mm-hmm. in films and would write off a film for all of those reasons. But I think it's very important to yeah. uh, subject yourself to the artifacts of the way that people used to be, so we can under, better understand the way we are today. That's how I preface uh, Night of the Living Dead to people. I was like, listen, you're gonna see. A depiction of uh, like I was like the women in Night of the Living Dead or not aside from Cooper's wife. I would I wouldn't even preface it for people, unfortunately, because I'm that kind of asshole that I wouldn't care what they think because I know what I think and I know what I'm in for. So if they're gonna have you know if they're gonna have little freakouts about the way that people are portrayed decades ago, they obviously haven't cracked a book or watched a film that wasn't released in theaters. In the last 10 years. I try to be less snotty about things, but... Mm, I can't help it. You could. You just don't want to. Yeah, that too. Um, So, I mean, like, speaking of Kate, like, the only note that I have here that I was like, why did I write that? It was like making fun of the fact that Jack hands Vivian a beer that's entirely head. Like, I love that scene, though, too, because <sighs> he's trying, he's trying... He's trying because she's like, I'd like a beer. And they're like, here's your whiskey. And she's like, I wanted a beer. And they're like, we drink whiskey. Sort of like, you have no say because you're barely a human being. And Jack's like, here's your beer. Here's your beer. I'm going to swoop in. But it's a useless beer. It's an awful beer. I was like, this is a bad pour, man. A really bad pour. <laughs> like, I was like, were you like, did you, were you just like pouring the can like, get in there, beer? At first I thought, you know, is that why they want to run him out of town? Because he doesn't know how to pour a good head of beer. Well, no, that because he overstepped them. Well, it's that. It's certainly that because there's definitely a point where he he's like pulling her away from them. Like, yeah, hey, come with me. Like it, he at first there's like subtlety and they're going off to have like a little romantic rendezvous and it's all hush hush secret secret. But by the time like the party's in full swing, 
Yeah, he's he like, doesn't give a fuck. Like, let's and, take a walk away from these guys. Yeah, and let's these, get in my jeep and leave forever. Yeah, that's that's his fucking attitude, yeah. and it's fucking crazy. But don't worry, because like the Templars are gonna make things fucking awesome. And mm. when the mayor and all of them know that shit is fucking going down, because they know that the train operator, they're like, oh, you know, he's not one to panic. It's very strange. And so, and we did hear broken glass over the phone, and sure enough, he's dead. And so they head back. They head back to the town. They try to get the governor's help, but like any kind of help, but they're basically left on their own because who's going to fucking believe them? Well, yeah, the governor just thinks they're all drunk because mm-hmm. his mistress, wife, assistant person has told him that they're all drunk because they're having lacma. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, it's great that you're having a good time. Let me sleep. Goodbye forever. And so, like, now they have to basically rally the fucking troops. The Templars show up in the middle of this fucking festivity. And this is, like, a very action-packed sequence. There's lots of fighting. The Templars are all using their swords. It is, like, a siege on a small town. It's very, very cool. Um, They're just riding around fucking smoking people. Uh, like the mayor and all the people of leadership positions are are dumbfounded about what to do. They're luckily up on a balcony watching the carnage from above. And I like that the Templars are riding around and not only confusing and scare tactics like they probably would have in, in real life battle. Uh, the people that they're not like killing outright, they're at least cutting their faces and stuff. There's a lot of face slashing. A lot of face slashing and also there's a, a lot of panic until Jack fucking rallies the troops and basically... The, the Templars have this entire place surrounded, so what they basically need to do is they need to use their forces, their superior numbers, and, and get all the weapons they could possibly muster, and then it's going to be a full-on fucking fight. And uh, all the all the guys, like all the guards and uh, the bodyguards that like were beating up Jack are all like by his side now, and they all have like fucking like primitive rakes. I'm like, what <laughs> decade are you actually from? Like, there's cars, but you guys are using like fucking shit that looks like sharpened sticks sharpened sticks and like here's my rake i'm like this thing looks like it was made like 600 years ago what that's all the the templars i'm like did the templars know how much time has passed they keep raiding these villages that look like they're fucking 1300 years old (laughs) so like anyways the only thing is these strange metal fucking dinosaurs that are uh that are roaming around a la the cars but when they finally get the people out and this is something that i missed i totally forgot about the movie all the people that escaped this village end up getting run the fuck down. And I forgot about that because I was like, one of the people was like, we're going to come back and get help. And it's like, okay. And I'm like, right. All those people survived. It's so crazy that so many people in the village survived. And then there's a scene later of just like the temple, because the Templars, by the way, still have horseback. Yeah, Yeah. And unarmed people are now running on foot against armed warriors on horseback. So pretty fucking crazy. But now we're into the part of the film where it's the most Romero-like of all of them franchises because Bert and uh, his wife and their daughter who tried to escape earlier, who's some of the guards, uh, one of the guards and his wife and the kid, mm-hmm. they hide into a church. And when Jack and all of them try to use the vehicle to drive out, they run over a couple of the Templars, but they can't barrel through like 10 guys on horses. The no, car just won't exactly, do it. Yeah. And even if they do manage to do it, the fucking horses, like 1,800 pound animal, is going to fucking roll over your car. Like, good luck with that. I tend to think that these horses weigh about 20 pounds because they're like dried dirt and bones by this point. <laughs> Probably. But yeah, right. we'll, we'll say a two ton creature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they end up at the church as well. Yeah, and they're all barricaded in, and it very much becomes here's a bunch of people Bert, his wife, the daughter, 
Seem familiar? A traditional family unit with a small child. And then we have like a, just a bunch of like like dudes competing for alpha while there's just like a bunch of like there's just three different women there with the inclusion of uh, Murdo, by the way. Yeah. And it's sort of like the alliance that forms between Murdo and Monica. Yeah. Monica managed to survive all the way back to the town. She's uh, re- she was really in shock and really useless up until recently too, and I think it's Murdo kind of brings her out of her shell a little bit. It's true. She seems li- she's blonde. She's a little comatose. Mm, seems like something else. Something else I've seen before. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Who also has like the first encounter with uh, these mummy undead zombie things? Yeah. Anyways, not trying to draw parallels, but I'm just thinking of them now. Yeah, no, it's it's very similar. You're very you're entitled to draw those parallels because they're apt. So, anyways, wholly unique is the fact that Murdo. By the way, Monica had saved Murdo from getting like pelted by rocks by children. I'm like, who lets children just behave this way? In seventies, I guess we're just gonna throw that out there again. Like, yeah, totally. Women are dish rags. Men's are misogynist rape faces, and kids kids roam the streets, kids roam the streets in packs, like picking on the disabled. Yep. So, at any rate, Murdo is there, and he there never are, fe- I'm just going to point out, there are still kids that behave like this. So, don't think that this is entirely encapsulated in Spanish horror films from the 70s. There are still children that behave exactly fucking like this, because their parents are deadbeats and don't pay attention and don't discipline them, and their kids are fucking juvenile delinquents in training. Well, I've never seen a child like that. So, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um... Murdo never fesses up to what he did. He never really has to. Everyone's pretty preoccupied. Jack's definitely running the show, though. He's our Ben in all of this. Steely-eyed. Um, in the Amer- in the English dub, they refer to him as an American. I don't know if that translates to the Span- Spanish one either. Because he's like, he's like, you're going to go with that American? I'm like, he's American? What? I think that they do. Yeah. I don't think he says where he comes from specifically. No, they just says America. Yeah. I didn't write down at all anything about him. So there wasn't much to be said about him. Yeah, fireworks vague. guy, ex-military Jack. He's the guy in the suede jacket, if you gotta know. And all of that is really front-loaded, because they talk about his origins within the first, like, you know, 30 minutes. Not even, mm. probably 15 minutes of his introduction. And then you never really hear anything about Jack's backstory from then on. All we know is that Jack is now, and Jack is a man of action. He is a man of action. And I have my note, Team Murdo and Monica. Yeah, I know. It's because, like, as they're basically barricading themselves in, they've established that they are, like, I wouldn't say the Templars are afraid of fire, but they're weak against fire. They're very dry. So, like, I could could imagine that if you were to, like, look at their dusty-ass fucking moss-ridden robes. Yeah. yeah, I would assume that they would be quite flammable. Oh, I'd think so, too. <laughs> yeah. And Murdo knows enough about them, but he knows a lot about this church, too. He probably knows every sneaky little corner in this entire place. And he lets Monica know that there are tunnels underneath. And they, if they clear enough of it away, they can probably escape. But don't tell anybody else. Because, you know, and I don't think it's a really skeevy motivation of his... No one else has ever been fucking nice to him in the whole town, so... That's true. Yeah, I, I genuinely... I don't think Murdo's up to anything anymore. Like, I definitely think that he worshipped the Templars, wanted to resurrect them, thought that he would get some kind of reward, and now that he's not, he's just kind of in the same boat as everyone else. Yeah. He doesn't like anyone from the town. Why the fuck would he? Yeah. Which is probably why he had this way in the first place, but Monica was genuinely kind to him, so fine. And he can't seem to clear this path in this mysterious 
underground escape tunnel that's within the church's bowels. Mm-hmm. And she has nothing better to do, so sure. Yeah, she was like, I can't help them. I'm like, why can't you help them? Anyways, the mayor also has himself a fucking plan. The mayor's plan is like, get back to the car that's surrounded by Templars. Now, he originally wants to go with Howard. Howard is very much like, I'm on your side, Jack. I'm with you. So the he basically tells the mayor to fuck off, especially since this plan definitely sounds way too dangerous and stupid. You're going to go out with a torch because you saw firework before and you're going to get to the car and the car is going to be how you're going to get to safety where they already tried that and it didn't fucking work. Is it because the mayor has all of his jewels and money and stuff? That's in the like, car still? Or did he bring it into the church with Well, them? that's in his, it's in his little briefcase. Is it in the car, though? No, he's holding his briefcase. Oh, okay. So he still does have it. Then, well, I don't know why he doesn't just sit there and count his money. He should well, that's be the thing. I, I was like, everyone else basically could just, like, sit there, right? And they yeah. do. They just sit, like, it, it, like, well, everyone else is playing fucking lookout. But the mayor's got himself a sinister plan. He's going to basically trick Bert into doing it. Good old Bert. Yeah. Which is awesome. He can use that family appeal, too. And, like, don't you want your kid and your wife to be safe? Yeah. You better want... go out there and, and be a, some sort of decoy and get the Jeep for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Typical mayor. And Bert is so bad at this. Yeah. Like, I... Well, they arm him with a torch. A very, like, a, like, they arm him with a broken piece of wood with some, like, fucking naphtha on it. Yeah. And light it up. Bert being as shitty as he is at this type of stuff doesn't really know how to set things on fire or really use things. I guess like once you get out there, it's probably a lot more scary than when you're safely behind a big church door. But he doesn't really he gets to the car and then doesn't really do much else except get his fucking arm cut off. Yeah, He's overwhelmed entirely and they are reacting to the fire, but there's too many of them. Maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, not only that, but, like, what he should do, this is, like, me being Captain Hindsight, what he should have done was try to light one. On fire, like, yeah. shove the fire so his robes are catching on fire. These things go up, like, fucking bales of hay. Like, I don't understand why he's just, like, trying to, like, hit them. And well, like... that's what I thought the point was. It's not even being Captain Hindsight, which I like your new moniker, by the way. I'm going <laughs> to fucking sew you a cape. But Captain Hindsight, you can wear glasses on the back of your head. I, I love this outfit. <laughs> That I've cooked up for you on the fly. But um, yeah, that's what I thought the point was. Mm-hmm. Go and light one of them on fire. Not just scare them away. Like, they're not uh, wolves in the forest. Yeah, I know. And the mayor, once he sees his Bert plan go down, and, like, Jack and everyone's like, what the fuck is going on? But, yeah, and, and Howard's like, well, that was that was the, the Duncan, Mayor Duncan's big plan. Um, the mayor... Like, no one really seems to notice that uh, the little girl, Nancy, little Nancy, has woken up and he fucking sends her outside looking for her dad. That's why I kept thinking there's got to be some other motivation on the mayor's part to be putting people in harm's way like this. That's why I'm like, he has his money, but is there more in the Jeep or something? Like, there's got to be more than just escape or... I To me, he just is like the mayor from Jaws if Jaws had a horse and would could ride inland. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I would assume he's just like, I'm shitty mayor. Shitty I, mayor I'm, and I'm so used to bureaucracy and the cavalry isn't riding in to bail my ass out. And mm-hmm. I don't know anything other to do than order people around. Is that like, I guess? Kind of. And, and, and like, he's just, he's a coward. He doesn't want to die. And he also doesn't want to like stay and listen. 
Like he doesn't, um, to me, obviously in a survival situation, you want to listen to someone who has an idea about how to survive. This Jack guy with all of this experience seems to be that. But he doesn't want to listen to him because of this thing with his fiance or whomever. And he and he's trying to make sure, and, and also it's a power thing. He's like, I'm the mayor, I should be in charge. But of course, during a crisis on a, like of this magnitude, you could like bureaucracy, politics, government break down and people who have raw natural leadership ability like rise. Jack. Yeah. Like and Jack. Who wants to follow this like fat cat mealy mouth bastard that the, the mayor actually is. Yeah. As like, like, like Jack is like Mr. Frontlines. I'm a fighter. I can fucking, I have the plans at work. I chuck dynamite at these fucking things. Where other dynamite go? They have sticks of it. Well, it seemed it, it struck me as more of like a firecracker. <laughs> oh they, yeah, maybe he's yeah. like, I could use my firework powers. <laughs> firework powers, and they were they were semi-effective, but yeah, they're out of them, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe they're in the jeep. I don't know. Yeah, but it, I understand it, the jeep as a vehicle for to get them to safety mm-hmm. and their escape pod. Yeah. But there seems to be some something bigger about the jeep. I don't know what. It is. He sticks something. Fucking Nancy gets stuck to the fucking a door with a stiletto, and that's it. And then the mayor tries to get away. I love this. I I love the scene where like this dumpy ass mayor is trying to like climb up this wall that's collapsing, and he's just like, "Oh, this shitty town. Why didn't anyone order this wall to be fixed?" (laughs) It's so good. And I really like the sequence where the mayor gets stuck by all these Templars. It's so slow. But again, like in so many situations in this fucking movie, when you're faced with the Templars, like I get it's scary, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't move. He doesn't do anything. Like they're moving so slow. Do they have some other power? Does their chanting mesmerize you? Maybe. Maybe that's it. It's like an Ajin and his scream has frozen them or something. Yeah. But it is this helplessness that he just overcomes people. There's a scene coming up in the third one where somebody just sort of gives up. The the will to live is gone, I suppose. And they just stand there and take it. But it's also just kind of crummy filmmaking in those scenes. Like all the strengths that Asario has in his in his writing and everything about these movies that is really enjoyable. I guess it's like, well, we're going to showcase the Templars attacking. So you just got to stand there and let them attack. Yeah. And I, I mean, like the, the Templar, I'm guessing the costumes are fairly fragile, too. Maybe. And and they can't really do a whole lot in those scenarios. The Templars look very good in this film. Like, I feel like the Templars look the best in this because it is a lot of more practical actors in full makeup as opposed to it looks like the whole upper portions of them are more puppetry than anything yeah. in all the other movies. I mean, it's great to give a really decayed, decrepit effect. I mean, it certainly makes them look old and ancient and mummified and all that kind of shit. But in this case, uh, I think we're just kind of back to the same old, same old. But again, they're not... These Templars are not gnawing on anybody. They are killing them with swords and then moving on. Yeah, they're not collecting body parts. They're not drinking blood. They're no. not gnawing on people no. at all. They're not doing anything. That's of why that. they're my warrior Templars. They're just, it's like you said, a revenge story. They just yeah. want to kill everyone in everyone in the town. This town. Maybe in, there's a virgin thereafter. Indiscriminately. And now when they realize that this little girl's outside, I mean, Bert's wife, who's like, where's my daughter? Where's my husband? I'm like, well... Bad news. Yeah. 
your husband is dead and your little girl's outside. And once they rally, like Jack gets to her, eventually gets to her. I mean, they, he figures out what happened pretty quickly because she sees that she's stuck to the door and shit. It's all- I think it's kind of cute because she seems to be coming across as super defiant. And it's like, yeah, we get that you're scared, but just run across the alleyway. It's all you need to do. Run mm-hmm. to the church door. It's all you need mm-hmm. to do. And it takes her about 10 minutes to be like, I'm stuck. And it's yeah. like, oh, were you embarrassed? Yeah. Yeah. And too scared to really d- do anything about it. The Templars must have got pretty close to her. Yeah. For her to be stuck there with a small dagger. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, the um, Jack's surrounded and he can't really get away. So Amelia. Amelia, uh, Bert's wife, Nancy's mother, basically does all she can. She grabs a, a, a torch. And what I dig about her, her death is she's scared and she's backed up against a wall. But she is just like spitting obscenities at these things. These vile Satan worshippers. You're filth. You're like murderers like she doesn't not acting overly scared everyone else is just coiling in terror and she is mostly trying to get their attention because like moths to a flame they are attracted by sound and this is still played up in this film Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and so it's all about like can we get through these things silently yeah because jack and nancy sort of sneak quietly while the mom is distracting everybody mm-hmm. and sacrificing herself for this exactly safety. this little girl this lost both her parents um and it, i mean it, basically because of the mayor the mayor basically sacrificed them but died in the process good and meanwhile wait a second murder and monica what happened to, the, what, to my team m team m m and m yeah m and m they were digging that tunnel they're digging that tunnel where does it go to safety Obviously. It goes back to the tombs. Yeah. It goes back to the graveyard of the Templars. And I love this scene is so fucking great of Murdo getting out and being like, they're not here. It's clear. It's safe. And the second he says that, a fucking sword just comes down and straight up decapitates him. Yeah. And down there is Monica. It's like, Murdo. Bruno, are you okay? What do you see? What do you see? And like, just like all this fucking blood is just like pouring down his body. It's so funny. This is the only flub I caught. But when she pulls the body down and it's about to drop, you can see the the tube. Oh, yeah. You can see the tube feeding the blood down the arm. Oh, okay. I never noticed. but I, so. I literally just noticed it yeah. the other day. <laughs> it's pretty good. And then she, in a scene I also really like, gets pulled up. Yeah. By the head, and then just all this more blood. blood. More like, blood comes down. I do like the scene for the amount of blood. Not, and it is comical, but it's also extremely tragic. Because you were rooting for these two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really rooting for these two. And, and thinking, like, you know, they'll get out, and then Monica will have a change of heart because she's a sweet lady, and she'll go back and rescue the daughter, maybe, or somebody mm-hmm. that's worth it. And, and you know, Murdo, Murdo is basically, like, a very unscrupulous dude. So mm-hmm. it's he's hard to, like, figure out, and she's panicking. But, like, I like Monica a lot. And this film franchise really has a way of deking you out because it seems that the women with the most survival instincts don't make it to the end. No. Um, it, it, it seems – and you'd be like, well, by – sorry. It stands to reason that if a woman – if the, whoever survives at the end of the, the film – Obviously, it has the best survival and things. Mm-mm, not at all. Typically speaking, the ones that do survive survive as a result of other people's actions. 
but like Monica, we saw her get away from watching Juan get killed, stealing a fell horse, warning the town. Yeah. And then like, I mean, she didn't save anybody's lives, but she gave everyone a fighting chance. She was the most traumatized and then worked through that trauma mm-hmm. to try and save herself alongside Murdo. Mm-hmm. And he just basically, you know what? If they just stayed in that tunnel, they would have been fine. Probably, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. he really did think they were safe. Yeah. You know, got to give him the benefit of the doubt. And it's just yeah. luck of the draw sometimes. But she doesn't really fit into that formula either of being like super young, single, not having a husband that's hand fed her all of her life. And she does have survival skills. She does have pluck. She does have moxie. And she still doesn't make it. But A little bit of pizzazz, too. A little bit of pizzazz. <laughs> she certainly does have some pizzazz. But now that we're back, we're back with our only surviving characters, Jack, Vivian. I find I find these characters quite boring. Like, they don't really do anything for me. All my favorite characters are gone at this point, i.e. Murdo and Monica. Those are the characters I really like in this yeah, film. Yeah, same here. I mean, whatever. I like Jack for being, like, the steely-eyed, like, I'm the good-looking guy in the suede jacket that's, that does stuff. So, it's fine. But, oh, shit. Howard's still alive. Mr. Yeah. Bushy Brow himself. Bummer. This is where we start to really hate Howard. So he he struck me as a bit of a of a Spock type character. Mm-hmm. And sure he has this crush on Vivian, but now he takes his lack of empathy and emotion and his love of Vivian and warps him into him being our new rapey bastard. Well, you know, every seven years the Vulcans experience pawn far. <laughs> I don't know enough about Star Trek, but I, I, I get it. I, I, I do recall you're, you're correct. If I'd known more about Star Trek, I'd have seen this coming. Yeah, you know, and man, holy shit. And again, he's like, the mayor's dead and you got to be with me. And I guess he's like, this is my chance. Forget Jack. Now that there's no one in my way. And he fucking like just goes after her. Tries to take her by force. Oh, yeah. and like rips her fucking clothes or whatever. Jack ain't having that. She's calling for him the whole time. Which is good because it actually works here. People mm-hmm. can hear each other People, screaming. Yeah. And so when Jack comes, they fucking duke it out mano a mano. And I like this scene. I even wrote uh, Howard versus Jack stage fatality because oh that's literally what happens. Because it, like, and I love like when when there's like, you know, there's a tussle and then you see an ornamental spear that's in the church fall at a 45 degree yeah. angle. And you're like, oh, my God. He's going to get impaled on the spear. And it is just like Mortal Kombat where someone's just like, ta 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 stage fatality. And they like get burned alive or like go into spikes or something like that. Yeah. It's that. That's it's exactly what really happened. that. And I was like, holy fuck. And then this is one of those situations. I was like, man, Jack just killed somebody. But, <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, he was a rapist and also a dick. And I don't even think Jack even meant to do that. It was totally accidental. Yeah. And then y- you could blame it on fucking mummies. Oh, totally. Which is me, by the way, my being me, the mummy cop. I would just blame it on mummies, and I'd be right this time. Yeah, the no, mummy cop right. by day and Captain Hindsight by night. <laughs> but now, this is like the weirdest sequence, because as dawn breaks, we know from previous film and the lore established in this movie, that the Templars return to their graves in the daytime, yet... There they remain, and, standing outside. Yeah, they're surrounded entirely, and they're even questioning this. They're like, shouldn't they be going away? It's dawn. Don't they? Aren't they powerless? They know enough about the lore that they're like, what's up with these guys? But they also know enough about the lore that they can probably sneak past them if they're real quiet. 
this whole sequence is like the the ending of the birds to me mm-hmm. where they're just like trying to like tiptoe past all these fucking like templars and they do giving nancy a blindfold so she doesn't scream but when she pulls the blindfold off because she's a kid impetuous and, little yeah, brat, she's a brat she screams but the templars don't move and then you give them a little poke poke pokeroo and they just fall over. And the cock crows because they had just gone to sleep. Mm-hmm. It was just that sort of timing where they were like, why aren't they disappearing? Why aren't they going away? It's dawn. But it wasn't technically dawn. Because if you ask Jesus. And many people do. Dawn only happens when a cock crows three times. Mm-hmm. So that's what had to happen. So while they're just beginning to crumble, basically... More like crumple, because they don't crumble. They yeah. crumple. Yeah. And they go to their knees and fall down. In, in some of the nicest, slow, little crumply. It's cool. I like the Templars and their guard waiting stance, like just hands on their fucking broadswords, just like standing all cool at and attention. shit. At attention. Yeah, at yeah. attention. I like it. It's so cool. Yeah. I love the Templars in this film. I really think that they look the best in it. Um, I like the way that they move. It's really cool. I like my warrior Templars. But then as these people leave the village that is now population zero, yeah, uh, we roll credits and we out. I'd like to think if only this weren't called Return of the Blind Dead, if this had happened before the first one, mm-hmm. then we'd be like, oh, okay, this is what they're doing. They're getting their revenge. And now they hunt every single night. Yeah. And this is how Brazano became abandoned yeah. wouldn't that be nice wouldn't that be sweet i, I agree if we're gonna like, retcon things and change the way they got blind in the first place we might as well just change the timing but instead they slightly change the name of the village to throw us off even more so i don't know it's just confusing it would have been nice though if they would have said 10 years previous yeah that would have been really cool and you know you know something fuck it just say it put it in your brain your head cannon as as a word that i've become very familiar with in the last week Hearing a lot of people talk about headcanon, which basically is just shit that they make up. That is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. And I, I cringe half of the time when I hear canon when it's used about things that aren't don't really need it. Like, is the new Zim film going to be canon? Who gives a fucking shit? Most people should not. But headcanon? Headcanon. I'd like to have a headcanon. For people who are going to make shit up and make it head cannon. Is your head turned into a cannon or is it a cannon that only hits heads? It's a cannon that only hits heads and fuck it's going to shoot heads out of the head cannon to hit heads. And I'll just have this like Mobius strip of recycled heads. Cool. It's like a Pez dispenser. It's like a Pez dispenser. A never ending Pez dispenser that eats its own Pez in its own asshole. Let me ask you this, Lydia. Mm. How your sea legs doing? Perfectly fine. Oh, great. Because we're taking it to 1974. For the ghost galleon. I'd like to know exactly how they got from Verzano onto this ship. But, like, they've apparently been on this ship all of their lives. So, I guess so, there's yeah. two factions. But I want to believe they're the exact same Templars. I still can't get over this headcanon thing. It's exactly alternative facts, and I hate it. I hate people who... I officially hate people who use the term headcanon. Like, no, really. Noted, man. My God. I'm glad I could bring to you, bring to the table yet another thing that you can hate. Thank you very much, because I'm running in short supply. Yeah, your Charlie Brown rain cloud is getting a little small. <laughs> yeah. God damn it. But yes, luckily we're on to Ghost Galleon. 
or El Buque Modito, or however you would pronounce book, B-U-Q-U-E, El mm-hmm. Buque Modito, Horror of the Zombies. I like this one. And it was made a year before I was born, so I wasn't even born when this precious gem was made. Welcome to my world, where lots of things weren't made before I was born. Most of them, especially <laughs> shit we cover on this show. 1974. Um, I, I do enjoy the different setting of this very much, but it mm-hmm. does have very many parallels to, mm-hmm. you know, the old runes. We've been spending a lot of time in runes and old Portuguese abandoned looking villages. Yeah. We'll return to an abandoned looking Portuguese village, but for now we're in a boat. And I don't understand how they got on the boat. And I don't care because I like it so much. And I just like them. And it's very similar to graveyards. So, and it's like a floating graveyard. Mm-hmm. It's a graveyard of the sea, if you will. Mm-hmm. But they end up on the boat. So I'm not sure. We, we're, we're cooking up these little theories or headcanon, if you will. Fucking headcanon. About the, the story of the blind dead through the eyes of the blind dead if they had eyes. Mm-hmm. So, like, I would like to believe it's the exact same ones. And let's flop, like, the stories of Brasano Village around so that we have them coming back 500 years later, destroying everyone in the village. Now it's an abandoned village, which makes so much more sense to me. But then they're just like, wake up one day and they're on a boat. Well, because of the fact that the Templars themselves are so widespread, I would assume that the real reason that they're on the boat is these were just seafaring Templars. They, for whatever reason, were traveling and they died. The Dutchman, who is the captain of this vessel, was a Templar and had other members of this sect of holy militia on the boat as well. I like to believe that they're from Brizano and they were charged with guarding the bay near Brizano. What this really that's possible. I mean, I'm not I'm not against it, but like at the same time head cannon. Brizano looked pretty landlocked to me, but at the same time you uh have these this idea that it wasn't just one chapter of the Templars performing these immortality rituals. It would have been many. And so this is just another one. I don't understand why there's different rules, but this one, aside from the fact that it's on the boat, these are my um, sailor Templars. These are my seafaring Templars, my water Templars. They act and operate almost identical to the uh, the ones in the first film. They really do, and I'd like to put out that they um, they act the same and they all seem to act the same, but it depends on what myth we're ascribing to them, what story that the library scene feeds us mm-hmm. will dictate what their actions mean and how those actions fit into the mythology we're fed. So in this one, there are some very stark omissions to their mythology as we know it. Mm-hmm. having watched all four mm-hmm. or even watching them in turn. So a fan in in the time when these were coming out who had seen the other two films go to theater and see this and be like, ah, they're very much like the very first Blind Dead, but there's certain things about the Blind Dead that are missing in mm-hmm. this one. This is probably relying on the fact that perhaps he was hoping that we're familiar enough with the lore, we don't need everything explained, or more importantly, Characters don't need to continuously learn this, even yeah. though we're always dealing with new characters. That's the problem. But what do we got going on here? A model party. Yeah, swimsuit models. Yeah. Lost at sea, which is kind of adorable. But they've charged these models to test out a new lifeboat. 
it's a small watercraft and it looks just like any other speedboat, but it's called a, a an action life raft or something like that. But it is just like a speedboat, but it's all like a secret guerrilla advertising campaign. So nobody knows. So the roommate of one of the models doesn't know she's been missing for a month, goes to her employer, the last person she worked for as a model and demands to know where she is. So this is Lillian, the owner, I forget the Barbie photography or something like that. <laughs> the name of her places, but she's a photographer. She does know where the girl is, but isn't telling the roommate, Naomi. And she comes in and she very much wants to demand what the fuck is going on. It seems very loosey-goosey to me. The 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 weakest portion of this film, in my opinion, is the very beginning. Yeah, it's just uh, it's all just a tactic to get swimsuit models and people on a galleon. <laughs> yeah. And because it, Kathy and Lorraine are the two models in the boat. Mm -hmm. They can just barely... Um, they can just barely captain this craft and they seem to have this like loosey goosey headquarters. It is all very loosey goosey yeah. that will send out a helicopter to save them yeah. if they get into any trouble. So it's all okay. Yeah. And but how this, you had pointed out like, well, they have no cameras out there. What is the point of yeah, all it's of like, this? What are they doing? Like, I understand it's like, well, we're putting two swimsuit models on a boat. I'm like, why? They're going to live to tell the tale. Well, who cares? Like, that, like to me, it's like if you okay, if you have a modeling agency or in your advertisement at all, why are you doing anything? These women being on this boat probably are costing you money. Why are you doing I anything? The point is that they're going to get out there into this particular location and be spotted by some big boat who's going to call the Coast Guard, and they're going to be able to tell the Coast Guard, "No, thanks, guys. It's all under control because we've got this nice boat." From Howard Tucker, who <laughs> built this super fucking action life craft or whatever the hell. And then the Coast Guard's going to be like, get a load of these two broads and then plaster their news all over the world that they have the coolest boat in the entire world. It's so fucking weird. But that's that's fine because the idea about getting... Listen, I don't understand why you can't just be... You're all on this big yacht together. You all end up on this boat together. Like, I don't understand why it has to be all this extra bits, but I guess... They uh, could have shortened it all by being like, hey, we're going to go out in the ocean and take pictures on this boat. And we heard that there's like a ghost galleon. So maybe we'll like have an, an eye out for that. And maybe if we can get it in the background when we take photos, we can be like, my boat is so cool and such a cool little action life craft that we survived the ghost ship that everyone's been hearing about. So they're going to go out there specifically looking for it with all of the people and the yacht and the little boat and all these things. And the roommate can be like, I don't trust any of this. I'm going to go with you. So that would get all of them out there. And then they would know more about the ghost galleon as much as they learn and get on it. And then the movie can carry on from there. Yeah. It would have been more interesting. It would have been more interesting. I mean, as it stands right now, I mean, they don't waste too much time. I mean, Naomi... And uh, not Naomi, Kathy and uh, Lorena uh, encounter this thing, this uh, billowing fog and this intense heat. Intense heat, billowing fog, and they're just not feeling good about this whole thing. They're not mm -hmm. feeling right out there. And they, they radio back. And Naomi has made her way to headquarters and is demanding that they come back or demanding to let them know that they're safe and they're gonna do a rescue mission because they send the helicopter out there that can't see the fog can't see the girls the meteorologist they they employ professor gruber says there's no fog there's no way there can be this sort of fog that they're describing 
So they've got to be out there. They just must be somewhere else. There's no fog where they are. There can't mm. be. Yeah, yeah. And he's really stuck on that too. Like he's like, "There's no fog." Like he's very like very adamant, very adamant about that shit. Meanwhile, we know that Lorena uh, basically gets on the fucking boat, just fucking throws that hook like she's Batman, and just like fucking climbs up. Well, yeah, I wouldn't want to sit on a little tiny boat beside a giant galleon. Like that's an awesome like multi leveled. It's almost like a cruise ship, but an old-timey teak-laden and brass cruise and The last ship. thing you're expecting out of finding a ship like this would be that there's anything to be worried about on it. Well, I think that might be the first thing you worry about, but it's awfully cool looking, and there's a lot more room to roam, and she's been cramped on this boat stranded for days. Mm-hmm. So that's got to be unfun. And the boat sprung a leak, the little tiny boat. So she just wants to be somewhere a little more comfortable and safe. And probably is really sick of Kathy. I mean, <laughs> I'd be sick of Kathy. But Kathy's not, I don't know, Kathy stays with the little boat for whatever reason. I'd get on the big galleon too. Mm. She does pass out for an extended period of time. Which she finds weird. Yeah. She can't help but go to sleep. I think the same thing happens to Lorena too when she gets on the galleon. She's not on the galleon too long, does a little bit of exploration, but uh, we hear screams of terror. But we don't see anything. This film's stingy with its Templars, I find. It is stingy with its Templars, but it's about the ghost galleon. It's not even called Blind Dead of anything. No, that's true. You would only like know if you were familiar with the previous films about what was even going on. This movie operates like a ghost ship, or eventually it kind of operates like a shockwaves. Obvious that something's wrong. Kathy finally gets up and goes onto the ship. This is interesting because... You had told me something interesting that they didn't have a whole ship to shoot on. No, they only had a half of a galleon. So that's why you don't see any shots from the bow. You see yeah. a lot of shots from like the where the wheel is and going down to the next deck. Mm-hmm. And you don't like they don't roam the top deck of the ship very much. So they must have been shooting very tight quarters because they only had like a half of a model ship to mm-hmm. to fucking shoot on. So we do see bow shots of the miniature ship. And like you said, shot in a child's bathtub. <laughs> oh my god. And when they're coming up on the ship and see it looming in the fog, that's the only like hint of the fucking bow that we see. So we don't get any like I'm flying Titanic shots and shit like that. No. But there is only the back half of this boat that they have. To the boat on. looks great once they're on the set. Oh, it, I love it, it. It looks really, really good. It reminds me a lot of the graveyards and the old runes that they end up traipsing around in the first two because it's got a lot of the same sort of visual patterns as a graveyard. Like a lot of like these short and squat, horizontals and verticals, dark things, corners, and multi-layered landscapes in this very tight constraint, mm-hmm. which I really do enjoy. A lot of fog, a lot of dark, very hammer horror as Very well, hammer horror. Which made me, we got talking about abandoned ships and ghost ships and things like that. Mm. And true ghost ships in history. How there's a lot more and more recent history than there were back in the day. Or at least that's recorded. And the Mary Celeste is the number one ghost ship. Because it was very strange circumstances that this ship was discovered to be abandoned. And it, absolutely nobody that had been on that ship has survived. So... The lifeboat that was launched off the Mary Celeste went missing as well and has never been recovered. So they don't know much about what really happened on the Mary Celeste. But Hammer Horror did do a movie about the Mary Celeste with Bela Lugosi on it. So I really need to see that. I had no idea. But this film does have a lot of 
hammer horror aesthetic to it. It really does. It's really the fog. The fog really does it for me. The fog and the skeleton popping out of a, a closet, basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Now it doesn't. It doesn't hurt to have you know beautiful women looking for things in a hammer horror. That's what I was saying. It's like it's a hammer horror, but instead of like a billowing gown with a corset, you're dealing with a, a woman just wearing a bikini. A bikini and awesome high heels. Oh yeah, yeah. It's pretty great. Naomi's outfits are great. Naomi's about my favorite character in this film. Uh, she's got some of the best acting. The other best actor is in the first one, the virgin that they're strapping to the St. Andrew's Cross. Seems genuinely afraid. Oh, an impeccable performance. A mm. really great performance and a, a blood-curdling performance. I really enjoy that. Naomi, on the other hand, just has a lot of range and mm. just looks great and has wonderful hair and I love her shoes. <laughs> when Kathy is on the boat and she's looking for Lorena... She finds her bright yellow bag. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's going to be home base. It's crazy to me how they're so... Con- like, there's so many characters in the scene. like, wow, they've got to be on the ship somewhere. I was like, yeah, this is a big ship. But how long do you honestly feel like a person could hide from you on this ship? No, yeah. And you're going to be, like, traipsing around and yelling for them. They would make themselves known. They must be dead or have gone overboard. Yeah. They they're... just have to be. But no one entertains that thought. No one says, well, I wonder if she's dead. Mm-hmm. We know that once Kathy encounters our tombs of the blind dead, they're not tombs. What would you call them? They're pine box of the blind dead. Or... They're pine boxes of the blind dead. Yeah, they're coffins. Coffins they're... of the blind dead. They do and fucking rising out of it like they're Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what it, this is. I mean, the, the Templar Knights are on this ship. They're in these pine boxes that are using as their grave and nightly. I don't know what, how anyone can tell what time it is with that fog. They rise. And if there's... Do you think they rise even if there's no one on the ship? Do you think they get out of their, their, their shit, out of their coffins every night? And they're just like, no one today, eh, boys? Like, <laughs> oh, I guess we'll just stand around here. We'll shuffle around. Yeah, 12 hours later, they're like, yep, quitting time. <laughs> do rounds. You know, if, if they're seafaring Templars and future horsemen of the sea, they must know enough about captaining a ship and they must take night watch. So mm-hmm. they take night watch maybe i don't think they get out of their coffins though if there's no one on there yeah i guarantee it's probably like a proximity mine right like when you're around them you're in their mummy aura and so they'll get out of their fucking thing now this film is very different not only the fact that the templar knights are on the boat but there's no templar knight flashback either no we don't have any reason we don't have really a library scene the only library scene we have is when Gruber sort of regales them with tales of where this ghost ship might have come from yeah. when he realizes they're dealing with a ghost ship. He seemed, Gruber is an interesting character in that he constantly, constantly calls himself a man of science. And other people call him man of science. But he's also very excitable and very ready to believe some very unscientific shit. Oh, he even admits it himself that he should be a far more analytical person, being a man of science as he is. But he can't help. But oh, want if this to guy know. says that once, he says it fifty fucking times. Yeah. And honestly, the character, like the character, doesn't really do it for me because he's so he's such a wiener. And he is a wiener. <laughs> I try and give him a pass through the whole film, and his very last scene, I'm just like, you are such a wiener. I liked fucking Candle better in the first one. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. that's that's definitely my 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 slow jam for like library, library scene, scene professors. Yeah. yeah, 
I like that guy. But like this guy is just like he's almost like a cartoon character. Like he's so animated and he's like there's no fog, there's no fog. However, look at all this evidence to support that there probably is like a horrible ghost ship and there's all this <laughs> fucking shit going on. Like he is so fucking convinced there's no fog and so convinced that there is a haunted boat full of mummies. <laughs> like that is fucking buck wild to me. I love it. I do love it. <laughs> Maybe he's just like an old nerd kid that put away all of his comic books when he was really, really young, all his ghost ship mummy comics. Yeah. And then he went to school for like 28 years to become a meteorologist. Yeah. And now it's all come back for him. He's, he, he would go home and dust off his EC comics. Yeah. Fucking, oh, yeah, I'm going to read this one now. I think he would because he gets on the boat and he's like stoked. He's like, oh, my, we're in a nightmare. The boat isn't real. None of this is real. Yeah. And he's we're, excited. We're going into another world. This is like practically another dimension. I'm like, listen to yourself. And when they're like, well, maybe we can fly down another boat. And he's like, no boats can see us. We're in another dimension. And he's just so matter of fact about it. He's matter of fact about everything. But that's part of that excitement on The Biggest Skeptic. They want ghosts to be real. They want there to be contact with the other side. They want UFOs to come down. They want there to be a ghost ship with mummies on it. So they're going to go out there and sadly prove that none of these things are real. Yeah. Well, Naomi is coming with these fucking fools who are who are now... Uh, Tucker is of the mentality of, if these women are dead, I'm ruined. Yeah. His his career in politics, is, I guess he wants to be a politician. End up like fucking Mayor Duncan, if he's careful. He's got his fucking muscle, like Sergey or whatever the Sergio. fuck. Sergio. Sergio, that's it. Sergio, who like fucking like... I fuck, I hate that guy. He's gross. And again, like when, first of all, the only thing, the, th- the other thing that drives me crazy is like Naomi wants to like help Kathy and she's really upset. And if anything happens, she's going to tell everybody. And she ends up like, she's their prisoner now. I'm like, what well, kind of operation is this, they running here? Because she would ruin all their plans. Not only would she ruin their guerrilla advertising campaign as it stands, she would, she's already said she would go to the police. They're like, okay, well, let's go rescue the girls. And she says, I just want Kathy safe or I'm going to go to the police. Which to me translates as if she's a woman of her word, she will wait until they bring Kathy back safe Mm -hmm. before making a move. They don't trust her, though. Mm -hmm. They're like, she's a wily woman out of control and she's mad. And, you know, what is that? Wild opinions of her own. Yeah. So she's probably just going to go to the cops as soon as we fucking turn around. So we need to keep her with us. Keep your enemies closer. Sergio means, you know, keep my enemies tied to a bed and rape them. Jesus. Basically. And again, it's the same thing. She tries to ask for water, tries to use that opportunity to dip. She's running in those kick-ass fucking heels. I love those heels. This gorgeous dress. Anyway, and then what ends up happening is he realizes that he has been bamboozled mm-hmm. and then goes after her. Then he chokes her. He chokes her half to death. Yeah. And then he lets her go. And then it's like neck licking time. He's Ew. making out with her, yeah. Ew. He's excited and confused about the the struggling, right? And mm-hmm. the, the proximity. And there's a huge problem with like a lot of older films and, and literature and entertainment where any reaction a woman has is some sort of sexual reaction, right? So men take it like that. At that face value, unfortunately. That's oh, crazy. It man. is fucking crazy, especially looking at it through contemporary eyes, right? But 
back and then. I don't mean I don't mean to keep harping on it, but it's impossible to ignore. When it was you're only as it. half as noticeable back then. That's the part that I dislike the most about it. I don't mm-hmm. dislike that it exists as much. Like I said, it stands as an artifact of the way that people used yeah. to behave and the way that people uh, would write these things into entertainment because the story isn't about that Sergio is a rapist. Yeah, that's not even what the story is about at all. No, it's just an interesting facet of his character. Because people like that definitely exist. People like that still fucking exist. So oh, yeah, for sure. It stands as a really fascinating artifact. But there's another, there's a scene in Cat Sick Blues that I covered uh, with Chris and Luke on Bind Torture Cast, where at the very beginning, a girl gets raped. And it's very much a scene of this confusion where a man hasn't spent much time with a woman and they have this flesh on flesh proximity it almost doesn't matter what reaction she's having he gets a sexual excitement about it because what she is and what she's saying what mood she's in how she's reacting what he's doing to her none of that seems to matter because some part of his mind is unfortunately only interested on that flesh and flesh contact which is sort of what's going on with sergio right here it's a fascinating abnormal psychology study from my point of view. But yeah, what what's a girl to do, right? She can't stab him. She wants to. Yeah. Well, there'll be some stabbing by this time is done. And so now they've they're on Tucker's yacht, I guess. Yeah. And they're just looking for it. They find it pretty quick. You want to know something funny? It's like this this legendary ghost ship that no one has ever seen it before and if they do see it all we have is transcripts of their transmissions and then they're never seen again we try to find it shooting torpedoes fucking sending out like all of our most advanced scientific equipment can't seem to track down this ghost ship oh there it is yeah i know right (laughs) they they stumble upon it pretty quick well they did know the girl's last known position and stuff but if people have been Shooting torpedoes. I don't know what, what like don't what know. they're fucking. He's like we've shot tor. What, like like you said we were watching. He's like you need a target to shoot a torpedo. It is like it's just like I don't know where uh they. Well, not a depth charge. You don't. But no, I mean, a depth they're charge, not looking for a yeah. ghost sub. Yeah, but when they were looking for Osama bin Laden for all those years, people just weren't like firing their guns in the air. It's like yeah. I'm trying to hit him. I don't know where. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly that's a great analogy. That's a hilarious analogy. But that's what he leads us to believe they were doing. But. Yeah, I like everyone's an asshole in this film. Everyone's a fucking asshole because you've got fucking Howard and Lillian talking about killing everybody on the way out there on the yacht. Yeah. Because they're like, well, if those girls are dead, we're ruined. And she's like, well, we'll just kill everybody that knows. Basically, is what she, yeah. her plan boils down That's to. Fucking. And she says it so casually, too. Did you recognize Howard? Did I recognize him? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I did. Is he not the cat from uh, Enter the Dragon? Pieces. Oh. Yeah. And it's um, Jack Taylor. He was the gym teacher in gotcha, Pieces. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Now that you say that. More Spanish horror. Well, Lovely I mean, hell. Stuff. If they're going to reuse Pedro, they may as well get a known actor from a classic. Wait, Pieces was after this. Well, anyway. So in Pieces, they got a known actor from a classic Spanish horror film. Yeah. Yeah, it took me it took me a, a bit to recognize him. I knew I recognized him from somewhere, but I actually had to look it up because he doesn't. He's a totally different character, mm-hmm. right? Totally different sort of character. At least we know he's not typecast. But no, yeah, yeah, he's like being like evil, rich tycoon guy, unscrupulous tycoon. That's what he is in this movie. Totally unscrupulous. If he's dealing with like just agreeing that they should probably just kill everybody if this so doesn't turn casual. out according to plan. Meanwhile, 
like a fucking puppy that you just brought home from the store the professor is just going off about like the fog that's rolling in and the do you feel the heat do you see the fog it's all real like a candy candy store he must have just been that geeky kid that had to hang up his comic books i really think that that's his motivation why he's so excited not just because he's a man of science and he's finally able to prove the existence of a ghost ship but yeah you know um once they all get aboard the most surprising thing this is this is literally the most surprising thing about this script as far as i'm concerned Naomi's the first one to fucking eat it. Yeah, which is kind of sad. That is so fucking surprising. Like, like beyond surprising. She's the most likable. She's the most capable. <clears throat> and she's the whole- got the most pluck, moxie, and pizzazz. And she starts like she. And it's not even a matter of like this is our heroine. There's, this is the character we're introduced to first. But she starts the fucking narrative, and she gets the flashback sequence. And the only other person involved in, like, the character building of that portion is already dead. And so you would assume, okay, well, then the movie is about her then and her struggle about how she's going to survive. All the people that she's basically in league with the bad guys. The only innocent one of them is probably the professor. But Tucker's a dick. Mm -hmm. That woman's a dick. Sergei's a fucking dick. Mm -hmm. And they're all horrible people. But yet her, who's only there to save her friend... First one to fucking die. I love it when narratives take a fucking U-turn like this because shit happens and life doesn't fucking pan out like all of the five storylines do. And it's not going to be an archetypal story with three acts and it's all not going to fit in a nice, neat little package. So I really, really like it when stories are brave enough or foolhardy enough to just write shit however the fuck they want. I mean, like, it is, it's brave and it's an interesting uh, character, uh, or sorry, it's an interesting story choice. I absolutely agree with you. But when what I'm left with is like the dregs of your writing, nah. I'm fine with it. No it's thanks. about the Templars. It's not about those people. I don't care about those people. Well, I'm sure the Templars more. Yeah. Do you have them do more then if this movie's I do them? like what we get to see of them in this. I guess. But like to me, it's like, so the sequence with Naomi is very good. I like it. She gets her throat crushed, basically, mm-hmm. and she's so she un- can't really cry out. Yeah, and everyone else is like in this deep magical mummy sleep that seems to overtake people who aren't getting killed while other people are around. It's probably so the Templars can maybe deal with people on an individual basis. I'm not exactly sure, but or the she- heat and the fog just naturally makes them sleep. This scene is agonizingly stretched out, and I mean agonizing in a good way. This uh, the the drama, the tension, the fear that you feel for this character as she desperately tries to escape, and then is dragged over what I'm going to say is four minutes. Yeah, and this- it's dragged out in the same way that the end of the first film is when she's trying to get onto the train, and we're yelling at our TV like, "Just walk, you fucking useless piece of shit." But in the opposite, like you said, you do really feel for her. She is being dragged by several very strong Templar mummy knights. Mm-hmm. And she has her throat crushed and can't cry out. Everyone else is sleeping. But she knows they're, you know, only feet away behind a door. And if she could get there and make some noise, someone might be able to help rescue her. And also knowing that they're all in danger. There's quite a little bit of blood happening here, too. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's decapitated and dismembered. And then they feed on her. Yeah, so they're back to cannibal mummies that need blood. 
Mm-hmm. Previously, we just saw um, Kathy get dropped below deck. We didn't really even see what happened to her. Yeah. Who knows? Well, now it becomes apparent she's probably chopped up. Chopped up and eaten, yeah. Yeah. And and then everyone else is kind of left to wonder what the fuck happened. They're stuck on this boat, by the way, because their boat vanished, I guess. Yeah. And Both boats just seem to vanish. Yeah, and both boats have vanished in the fog, mummy magic. <laughs> mummy magic. Yeah, and the professor's just like, we're clearly crossing into another dimension. And he's totally okay with this. <laughs> it's Everyone is totally okay with all of this. He's done, you know, we get a library scene because he's been doing some research when he's mm-hmm. not sleeping and not hearing people scream. Um, this is a ship that belonged to Satan worshipping Templars. Mm-hmm. They had found the secret of immortality, like most Templars do, from traveling the Orient. Not only did they bring back riches, but the secrets of immortality as well. And Satan worship, which is strange to me because that's not a very Orient thing to do. It's a little more North American. Yeah. Contemporary North American at that. So, like, they lived there from the 15th to 17th century because he's saying, like, they started on this boat in the 15th century. And one of the girls points out, but this is a 17th century galleon. And he's like, well, I guess they're immortal. And everyone just sort of goes, well, yeah, I guess so. They swallow a lot of lore, but they don't know much about them. Like, they don't know that they're blind. Yeah, they don't know they're blind. So that doesn't really come into play in this at all. And uh, Tucker doesn't really believe any of this shit, but he will when he finally sees these things. Because this is also what I like about this film. And I talked about it earlier about something that they address in this that they don't address in the other films. These fucking Templars are rich. Yeah. Historically... They had a monumental amount of wealth. Like fucking Scientologists. Like Scientologists. But you don't have to worry about like golden jets coming over the mountaintops. All you need to do is drink a little fucking blood. And they have this secret Templar gold, which might start replacing my Nazi gold (laughs) analogy. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably a little more PC or like people wouldn't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's like secret Templar gold. And... You can, um, you could probably envision like this room full of gold, and that's really what they find. I mean, when they're when uh, the professor is trying to lift one of the casket lids, and he can't seem to manage to do it. When Lillian is knocking on the, finds a hollow room, like a hollow room. It's a it's a, a door, hidden, obscured, and yeah, inside a big, like fish netting. Yeah, on and, one wall. And 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 as soon as you they open that door and they all pour inside, I love how there's just like like a skull with horns on it, and they're like, look at that Satanist. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I do, I do I do like that scene a lot, mostly just because I like that horn was skull like that's very it, cool it, it looks skull. fucking dope and later its eyes light up and i'm like why isn't this on my fucking wall i know right <laughs> and it does like hearken to the the templars getting dissolved changing their names um turning into a lot of different sects and let's say the rose cross and somehow being morphed into the teachings of alistair crowley which somehow feeds into levan lore and somehow feeds into common satanism not something that the casual moviegoer would have followed or cared about or is very very loose associations with all of those things anyway like very very loose yeah you're tripping me out man mummy magic you think it's mummy magic 
well, I don't know. Well, they think it's Satanism for fuck's sake. Yeah, they just they just like again, like we've said previous episodes, like Satanism is just this catch-all thing that people toss out. Yeah, and it seems like and the the modern audience is just like, yep. Satanism, particularly in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. Like We're sa- heading into satanic panic here. Mm-hmm. This is the sort of shit that fed it because someone might have watched this and then gone out and like decapitated a dog or something. Mm-hmm. My word. Mm-hmm. Monocle. But this is th- this is one of the things like when they when the, the Templars arise and everyone sort of fights them off that is fucking generous when they run a, when they when <laughs> that they is very generous when they run like chickens they do run like chickens well and, they had their hand in the cookie jar they were like look at all this not nazi gold look at all this templar gold <laughs> yeah and, and then the templars are like don't touch my gold and sergio basically does what no one in this film has ever a franchise has ever really been able to do book it the fuck out of there faster than you can say cha-ching and He's gone. Like a fucking little rape face shaped cloud of dust where he was standing. He's out of there. Yeah. And meanwhile, no one else can really seem to get away. But they do have this fucking moment where they make a makeshift cross. The professor does. Lights it on fire and starts like, back you evil beasts. I command you. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, is it the cross or is it just the fire? We've known in the past that... The fire works to repel them, but that's pretty little flame. But I also like don't think that would like would religious artifacts really push them. No, because they collect religious artifacts, especially ones made of gold. Yeah, they don't give fucking shit about crosses and stuff. They really yeah. fucking but don't. Did, in the previous it's the fire, yeah, in the previous film, did they not enter the church because it's the church, though? I think they just didn't enter the church because it was barricaded. It's barricaded, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just wondering. Like, my favorite is when they have their little swords and they're like ting, 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 ting off of a fucking building because yeah. they're having a hard time getting through and they have to find like the weakest point. So they're just gonna like hit yeah. every surface. It's like you're looking for the secret wall in a tomb in a video game. Yeah, and you're just yeah. like hitting A, trying to find every the glowing weak point, and you look at yeah. them like, yeah, okay, these were some of the greatest warriors in <laughs> in like human history. It's like these were like the the tail end of the Templars, where they were just like drinking and and like sitting around and shit like that. The good Templars never like converted to Satanism, probably. But anyway, these are the lazy. These Templars. are the lazy ones. Were just like mortality. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, do we need to know how to fight? And I'm like, fuck it. <laughs> fuck it we just got scans of money yeah we're rich fuck. that's that's kind of like we could just throw our we could throw our gold coins at them anyways but after this one encounter and they basically scare them back to the bowels of the ship well the flaming cruciform i really do think that it is just the fire and it's also like again you're the people in the story are ascribing whatever lore they can scrounge together to make mm. sense of these fucking creatures. Mm. So a flaming cruciform, whatever, if, mm. if it's working, it's working. The fire or the cross, I am, I don't believe the cross makes a difference. Yeah. At any rate, when they basically jumped to the conclusion that the Templars now are asleep in their coffins. And so they do a fairly logical thing. Fairly logical thing. I mean, they're they're trapped in a world of no logic because a ship goes right past them and they're trying to wave it down and screaming and yelling. But the fog, like Gruber points out, you know, no one can see us. Yeah. We're still trapped in the fog. Then he realizes, oh, my God, it's daytime. They're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Oh. 
So they toss their fucking shit overboard. Yeah, just grab up coffins. And I don't know how long it takes them, but I guess it takes them a while. Yeah, well, they only toss like four caskets overboard. And that seems to be what looks to be 20 to 25 Templars. Yeah, they should have done a montage so that we had the impression that they threw a whole bunch of them overboard. Yeah. But. I don't know. It works for me. I I will swallow that they tossed all of the coffins overboard. There was a whole yeah. Bunch we don't of them. we don't really need to see all that anyways. Like that'd be boring. And I don't it, think that those Templars and their coffins would sink though. It's such old wood. Dried completely out. Like it's a big empty cavity with a mummy inside of it. Like the Templars themselves probably weigh like thirteen pounds. Probably. And I could probably pick up one of those caskets by myself if they're mm-hmm. that old. Really, truly, and old, but like sitting in a in a boat on the ocean. Sure, it's like humid there because of the fog. But the fog only sticks around when there's people there. I think it would be pretty fucking dry. I really do. But either way, so they're throwing these coffins overboard, and they all sink. They do. Then the fog lifts. The fog does lift, but here's the kicker, and it drives me fucking crazy, is that our old exuberant professor that basically saved them all by s- scaring these Templars back. Sergio is, like, grabbing his, like, case of jewels. He basically is the mayor from the previous movie. Yeah, he grabs the purse and stuff. The one totem, the one thing that they did have to prove that the girls had been there. He doesn't give a fucking shit about those girls. He's filling it with gold. Filling it with gold pieces. And then he's like, I'm getting something out of all this. I'm like, something out of all this. You're probably being paid to be here. Um and, he was and flying like, a helicopter around earlier. I know. So I was like, how poor are you? Like, are yeah. you really hard up for money? Anyways, yeah. him, him, Tucker, and Lillian are going overboard. The professor doesn't want to go, though, because he can't swim. And it's like, that's crazy to me. I know, guys, I'm going to stay on the fucking ghost ship, thanks. It's like, he may not feel like it's dangerous because of the fact that they tossed the Templars over. But let's be real. What's unique about these Templars, what's unique about this whole situation, is it's not just the Templars themselves that are supernatural. This entire fucking ship. Yeah, they could seems come to... looking for you an hour from now and not find you ever. Yeah. And he knows this. And and like they know so fucking little about this boat. Yeah. They know so little about what's happening. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to wait. He's like, we'll come back for you. I'm like, will you though? Well, th- swimming to him seems to be scarier than staying on the ghost galleon. Well, you know what? He deserves what ends up happening. Now, by the way, Sergey, like when he's down there, they they grab one log to help them get to shore. Yeah. And it's like, this will help us get there. Because the wood is old and dry and will float. Mm-hmm. Unlike all the other wood on there. It's like the ship is literally made of old fucking wood that floats. They could have just grabbed on one of those coffins. Why don't they just dump a Templar out without the coffin, get in the coffin, make a little paddle? And have the fishies nibble at him. Well, they're going to have fishies nibbling at them either way with this goddamn log they're going to float to shore with. Because they can see the shoreline all of a sudden, which is doubly strange. Yeah. So they, apparently they're they're minutes from safety. Yeah. Which is strange. But I mean, what? So through some sort of like, if the Templars are no longer on the ship, it's almost like whatever magic was keeping this ship afloat and keeping everything together has dissipated to the point where it's like it's but it's not even like everything's falling apart it's almost as if the boat itself is like no more boat for you guys Mm -hmm. and it basically sets itself on fire through the glowing skull apparatus on the wall yeah knocks over some shit everything lights up and the boat just instantly just bursts into flames and the professor who's on the boat just dies he dies of smoke inhalation which i suppose is a better way to go than like burning to death but like 
was like, even now you won't take your chances and just jump overboard? There are people out there that are that afraid of the water. Yeah. That would, you know, take offense that you think that he deserves what he gets by burning alive on a boat. <laughs> but Well, I don't know. Sergey gets fucking stabbed because this is the craziest thing. He deserves thing. what he gets. He so. does because he has his gold. He's got the lady. They got the wood. And then when Tucker comes down, he's like, there's no room for Tucker. And he's like, murder time. What is happening? Like, what? Like first of all, he's not a good guy anyway. He's a fucking dick. But, like, they're all dicks. Yeah, they're all they're definitely And, and I don't dicks. understand why we're supposed to, like, give a shit about Tucker either. I was like, this guy's an asshole. He's a swine. What are you talking about? I'm not that worried about? about giving a shit about him at all. I don't know why you're so bent out of shape about having to care about people. Mm-hmm. Because I fucking, like, this is what I care about. So, anyways, though... So, you have these fucking shitty characters that are just like kicking, <laughs> kicking towards the shore. So uh, Sergey gets knifed and he's just like floating down. I was like, oh, shark know, food, shark. That's, that's going to attract all kinds of fucking things you don't want to be around. So get away from that guy. Professor's going down, and then oh good, Tucker and Lillian get to uh, the shore, exhausted. But uh oh, because the, uh, it's still broad daylight, but the Templars are woke. I never. I never um, caught on to the daylight thing. I'm glad that you pointed that out because I'm just so stoked on the Templars being released from their watery graves mm-hmm. that I don't care what time of day it is. I don't care about the lore and mythology and what they can and can't do. They're walking out of the fucking ocean after these people, which I love. And they found a new village to besiege, I think, which I enjoy very, very much. Yeah, it's a possible theory. Um, they surround what's left of our cast. And then we see the POV shot, what it would look like to be surrounded by them. Which I really do like because there are lots of scenes from behind the Templars when they're all, you know, descending upon one person, like rats. Like you'd mentioned, that's a very good analogy because that is like, you know, like fucking dogs at mealtime. They're like a husky troop <laughs> eating chow. And But this is, yeah, the reverse position of that. So we see all those heads converging in on the camera. Yep, knowing these characters are doomed, good riddance, too bad rubbish, mm-hmm. Finn. And now they are the horsemen of the sea. Uh, maybe. I doubt it, though. You doubt it? How can you doubt it? They just came out of the sea. They were the Templars on the boat. They got put in the ocean. And then all of a sudden they come from the ocean every night for mm. seven days, every seven years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they got new rules, but they're the horsemen of the sea. They're even called that in the fourth movie. They definitely are. And we will take the final jump. Maybe this- they have a band meeting. Maybe they, they're like, okay, okay, so we just walked out of the sea, guys. What do you want to do? Well, there's a village right there. You know, we like villages. Haven't been around a village in a while. Yeah, let's get a village. So, like, are we going to, like, still be blind? Well, yeah. Okay, are we mm, rich still? Oh, always. <laughs> Whether we let people know or not. Um, do we get our horses back? Fucking right we do. Okay, so are we like every 500 years, every night? Are we hunting by night? Like, I'm lazy and tired. We've just been on a boat for so long, so I'm hungry, yeah. But I'm also like lazy. So, mm, seven days? Seems like too much of a commitment. Seven days every seven years? Seven days every seven years for virgins only. Seven days every seven years and we're going to get the townsfolk to feed us virgins. How about that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Maybe that was a band meeting. It was a fucking blind, dead Templar band meeting. We take it the jump to the 1975 finale 
of the Tombs of the Blind Dead series. You with us on this fucking marathon. La noche de las gavitas. Night of the seagulls. I don't know how you pronounce that. Gaviotas? <laughs> <laughs> the opening shot of this film, well, we get seagulls for the first shot, but then we're back to a, to a flashback where we get a sexy Maid Marion type. She's a little sexier than the girl in the very first film when we get a flashback of um, the Templars in the middle of the film with the virgin being dragged to the St. Andrew's Cross and lashed and stabbed and mm-hmm. drank from and all of that mm-hmm. horrible stuff. Instead, we do get a little more, like, an upset, but a little more compliant Maid Marian type. Mm-hmm. She gets, like, carried off by a bunch of them. But mm-hmm. this is the introduction to the final version of these Templars, the most ritualistic, the most devout to their satanic ritual. I call them the Templar monks. They are much more like Templar monks. Now, all Templars were monks, Yes, right? but I'm Basically. just talking about, like, the, the specific character yeah. traits. The ones you're making up in your head canon. In my head canon. Oh, my God. That's right. It's going to be part of your vocabulary. No, it's not going to be. I hate it. Every I hate day. It. I absolutely fucking hate it. No, it's it's the stupidest fucking term I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and I don't even mean to apply it to your theory because what you're positing is a valid film theory mm-hmm. that you've taken from observation. It's not made up fucking shit. True. Yeah. Now, the reason why I, I comment on this is because of the fact that more than ever in any of these previous films, we see... What I would call the completion of this weird ritual. We've we've seen before women last. We've seen before hands raising up. We've seen Templar knights looking skyward, uh, saying some sort of internal prayer and plunging the knife down, removing the heart, drinking the blood, biting from the heart. Now we see the offering of this heart into the mouth of a giant statue. It's not of, like, Baphomet. It's not that. Which is what you would expect with all this Satanism. Satanism. We would. Like, I would be expecting some sort of, like... By the way, if you guys aren't aware of what that image is, you know it. Once you see it, Google it. It's it's the goat head with the hand up. Our horned lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the image. Believe me, if you guys Google it, you'll know it. Or even paying attention to the news and the nice and lovely statue where he's hanging out with children. Yeah. Yeah. So... But this is the most Lovecraftian in the series, apparently. And I can definitely see the parallels, especially with the people that have the Innsmouth look in a town that's much like Innsmouth. But they're feeding this to like a lizard god of some mm-hmm, sort. Yeah. It's like a froggish lizard god. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's it's this big statuesque totem that they have. And that, see, and not only that, but we see somebody like uh, in a clear leadership position where they're like in a, they have like a golden throne. And everything like that. So I'm wondering if this if this is all like if this if all these stories take place in and around Portugal, there's no reason to think that they all don't. Yeah. Um, it could be possible that this is a chapter consisting of many variations, different knights that had different specialities with um with their um daily lives. So perhaps at the very top there would have been the most pious, the most religious ones and like you have the warriors of the grunts and the scavengers that might have even been even lower perhaps the scavenger cannibal ones were like the laziest most slovenly of the templar knights we know that as as centuries rolled on this did happen to the templars so it's not 
beyond reason for that to happen. But in this story, we basically have that cutscene that indicates all of this, the more ritualistic Templars. Then we're back to modern times again, but we're back on land, but this time a shore, a seaside city so or a town. And so it's not with... Uh, it's not unreasonable to assume that it is related to the previous film. We do see that they are now on the water's edge with these particular Templars. Um, these, And we know so little about the seafaring Templars from the previous film. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so little known about them. Maybe we don't know And they mu- end up coming to shore, so now they're landlubbers. Yeah, but I mean, these ones have their horses again, and um, they, but they do not engage in a similar way to the others because they're more methodic, like the, the cannibalistic ones, but they use their swords like the warrior ones, but very slow, but and also kind of adorably and kind of adorably. Cause they're always just like, just tinking against things that the swords don't work against guys. But also we have this, the like so much carrying off of women. And what happens to this like maid Marian type is she is dismembered like her ultimate fate is dismemberment and then there's these long shots of just like crabs walking around her and shit well crabs are like disposing of the flesh which is kind of cool but it's yet another offering in a way i think Mm -hmm. to to the sea themselves and um the village idiot in this particular one uh teddy teddy yeah at least he has like a more normal name he does isn't like murder i'm mr (laughs) kill (laughs) <laughs> I'm Poop Man. I'm Poop Man. Yeah, Teddy. I'm Nefarioso. <laughs> yeah. Teddy makes him a little more lovable. He is a little more lovable. But he's not much more well off, though. He is tormented by the townspeople, too. And what we have here is uh, Dr. Stein and Joan and uh, Dr. Stein who show up as like they're going to be the new physicians, basically, of this small town. And it's very primitive, very run down. Oh, yeah. And like right away, Joan is like, it's horrible here. She doesn't want to be here. And it is uh, Berzano is the name of this village. So, yeah. But like before Berzano was like landlocked. Well, there was a river. So maybe it was a tributary to like the ocean. And maybe Berzano really big. And one side of it is the port side. And the other side of it is like heading into the, the forest. So there's like a river. Or maybe we it's just, again, we're just changing things as we go to suit the story that you want to tell. Brazano is next to the ocean, whatever. Next. Yeah. They've come there because Henry is a doctor, Dr. Stein. And he's there to replace the former village doctor who is hastily packing his things mm. and hightailing it out of there and telling them, don't stay here. Hmm. Like, I guess it's like supposed to be like doctors without borders kind of feel here. Like I'm coming to this little town yeah. to be the doctor because they need a doctor. Yeah, it's like an assignment. Like, yeah. like, like, are you like, like, is that how they assign doctors? Like, you're a doctor. You're stationed here. Like, is there like a doctor headquarters that partially? But I think it's also like doctors, um, and not as much now, but back in the day, like when the Dion quintuplets were born in the 30s, there was a Red Cross nurse that wasn't ordered to come here, but she was like. They need me in Canada. <laughs> and she came over here and helped with the, the, the quintuplets. But, like, I think free of charge or eventually the Red Cross was paying her. But because I don't know the exact details of all of that. But she wasn't assigned to come here. She chose to come here. But it's like Doctors Without Borders. It's the goodness of their heart when they're like, you know what I really want to do is go and help all of those, like, Belarusian orphans. So the doctor will just go there. 
like a lot of doctors do take like um oh what is it when christians go off and like uh, like a missionary like missionary like yeah. missionary yeah it's like a missionary thing that doctors tended to do in the 70s before doctors without borders was like really a big thing Mm-hmm. So I think that that's what he's getting at because he seems to have some sort of like, he seems to have this sort of like fantastical, I'm here to help the people feeling. His wife just hates the fucking place. Mm-hmm. But the townsfolk treat her like shit too. Yeah. And it's weird. The elders of the the, the, the the town seem to be like, well, the men seem to be dressed in like just old man clothes, but like all the women seem to be wrapped up. Like Mormons. Almost, mm-hmm. right? Like they're wearing like black cloaks like i would almost say yeah like mormons and nuns like something right like they seem to be very chaste mm-hmm. and they're very bitchy yeah super they won't bitchy. talk and the doctor won't even say like this is something you don't talk about this plot point drives me crazy because i get frustrated when i sit and watch characters who know things not say things for no other reason other than to Keep the plot rolling forward. Why can't you say anything? I was trained for a job once and I got extremely angry with my superior within the first week because there was something like, I don't remember. It happened a lot, but like for a specific example, I can't remember exactly, but it would be something like um, you file everything alphabetically except for this one client. This goes here. And it's like, well, why? And she's like, oh, well, you'll you'll find out. The longer you're here, the more you'll find out of why we do things. And I was like, well, just tell me why. Why isn't there another folder under the proper alphabetized name for this client? Like, is this client owned by that client? Is that why they're filed together? And she's like, you'll figure it out. <laughs> that's okay. Now, when Joan is getting ready, that's where she's introduced to Teddy. Now, we, having watched this franchise before, have seen like certain village idiots, quote unquote, mm-hmm. be depicted as like, no good nicks and dangerous and Teddy seems to be coming off as kind of like a peeping Tom perv. You're like, what's this guy's deal? He's looking at it through the window and shit like that. But it turns out that, um, well, Teddy just doesn't want to be out at night and he's been hurt by the villagers and he just needs a doctor, but he has crummy social skills. Yeah. And he just doesn't know any better. And so Joan does the right thing and she treats him, uh, and, uh, kind of gets like a, 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 a buddy, like, because yeah. like he he doesn't want to stay at night, and so after this conversation that Henry has with the original doctor, saying you got to fucking pack your bags and leave, and I'm not going to tell you why, but anyway, I hate that fucking attitude. Yeah, I yeah. can't I can't stand it. But he, they said fine, whatever, and uh, yeah, Henry, I'm sorry, Teddy is there to not stay, but at the very least, like that night, they're like, yeah, fine, you can go sleep up in the. The attic, which kind of seems like um, a barn. Like a hayloft. Like a hayloft or yeah. something like that, yeah. And that seems to be what the situation is. But they make an odd observation. They hear chiming at night. Chiming and, like, bells ringing and seagulls. Yeah. And it doesn't seem... Joan seems instantaneously agitated, but she doesn't like this place anyways. No. And so she's not exactly in the in the mindset to make the best of anything. Whereas Henry is like, look, that's just the way it is. What you going to do? Like, just try to get some sleep. I'll so just... seagulls making noise at night. Um, it is definitely probably someone screaming. But, <laughs> and seagulls. But mm-hmm. they don't make that observation because it's just like, oh my God, it's seagulls. Seagulls don't fly at night. And he's like, just go to sleep. And then there's a continuity error where they actually switch sides of the bed suddenly, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of cute. But 
that or we're supposed to believe that they suddenly had sex and they're seen missing. I don't know what's going on there. But she is very agitated, not only because the rest of people in the town have treated her like shit and she thinks it's horrible there. These sounds at night are not normal. Seagulls do not crow at night. And it would make sense if a ship were coming in, Mm -hmm. if they had no lighthouse, church bells would toll. If there was a ship expected to come in and the Mm -hmm. seagulls would maybe have been scared off of their roost out, you know, on a rock or something Mm. where the ship had disturbed their sleep and they would fly in and make noise. If there was a ship coming in, this would all make sense, but there isn't. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not the bell chiming that gets Henry out of bed. It's really the, um, it's the seagull comment. He's like, you're right. Seagulls don't fly at night. What's happening? (laughs) You know, they go down there and they see some kind of, uh, march, some kind of, uh, walking amongst the beach. And all these women shrouded in their black cloaks are walking with a girl all dressed in white. And they just sort of, well, it's some religious thing. Let's go to bed. Back to bed. Bonkers. Like, I would, I would, listen, if it got you out of bed and you got all the way down to the water and you saw all these people in the middle of the night doing this, I would just be like, hey, guys. No way, man. I would back away slowly. All the way to where my car keys are. And I would grab them, continuing to back away slowly into the car backwards. And then I would start the car and I would drive the fuck out of there as fast as I could. Because I don't want any part of any religion, let alone one that is taking place at midnight with virgins on the seaside. This ends badly. This always ends badly. It really does. But But they're just all like, eh, must be a local thing. And then go back to bed. Meanwhile, the Templars are back. They use a lot of reused footage here of the Templars coming out of their tombs and shit like that. And then they just march on down the beach and take this girl. Who knows what they're going to do with her? Something, probably. I I have a sneaking suspicion. (laughs) But ultimately, what what we're left with here is Joan back in town the the next day and she wants to do some groceries. The townspeople won't even talk to her, though. And it's funny because who comes to her aid to help her out is a local girl, Lucy. Who's my one of my favorite characters in all all these movies? Yeah, Lucy is one of my favorites, and she does fit in with the formula of the the younger you are and the less men you have tying you down, the more uh, intelligent you can be and the more moxie you can have. Yeah, except she has like a horrible case of I can't say anything either because <laughs> she instantly she's like, listen, my parents are dead and I need a job, so how about I just come work for you as your housemate or whatever. And then she's like, well, yeah, well, what's going on with those religious r- rituals down things? And she... What like, rituals? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and like hands the groceries back. She's like, I'm not going to like work for you now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, she's like, oh, well, you seem nice and you're very pretty. That's something that I found very interesting. Uh, in this particular movie, it seems like the second or third thing any woman says to each other or or anyone, or they're describing anyone. It's like, she's a redhead. Very pretty. Like, <laughs> like I was like, that's not a descriptor. Like, she's redhead. Uh, in this particular town, it is. And it, like, makes me think of, like, that is the oddity. They're the odd people out because everyone else just looks like an old babushka. Yeah, basically. And it's funny because as you get the sense as this movie is progressing, we know that because the next day, so that night, a woman comes screaming to the doctors. Well, like, and I love this. Like, what I like that Henry and Joan have, like, they got Teddy now and now they got Lucy. It's like they're getting, like, a little, like, posse together of, like, here's the friends that live at our fucking house now. It's like a fucking sitcom. And all of a sudden at the door comes this screaming girl. But this girl that comes to the door that they douse with tranquilizers and shit. Um, 
Like several times. It's like yeah, I know. She like, wakes up upset. Well, she's getting up at tranquilizers, but her parents want to come and grab her. The mother seems in tears. This little babushka mom. Mm-hmm. She's in tears, but they need they need her. And of course, we know that she ends up strapped to that fucking thing like anybody else. This time, though, we get a continuation of what happens to her. And just like hundreds of years ago, she is dismembered, or she's killed, or, or not. She this one isn't dismembered. Sorry, she's not dismembered. But the crabs are still going off. Like, there's a very long shot as the camera pans away and there's just crabs all over the place. I really thought Tiamat was going to come out of the depths and just snatch her up. You think so? That's what I thought was going to happen. That'd be really cool. I thought that would improve this picture. It would. It would. We could probably make it a Cloverfield movie at that point. Oh, fuck yeah. Now... As this, as things are kind of unfolding, you can pretty much guess. Well, I was like, I can guess where this narrative is going. I'm like, but one of the things that I wasn't entirely clear about until they cleared up eventually was, I was like, is this every night? Yeah. yeah. I was like, I was like, how do you, I was like, you're going to run out of girls. Oh, easy, quickly like, like, too. I was like, Especially like, if you need ones that are very pretty. Very pretty. Like, so you need very pretty virginal type women 365 days a year. I'm sorry. That's insane. Oh, but we're going to get a little bit of information because they go to Teddy when they can't find this girl because they look for her all over in town the next day. And eventually Teddy does come clean about the situation, comes clean about what these rituals are all about and why the seagulls cry at night. It's actually quite a, this is like the, like the, the type of part of a legend that becomes far more like a fairy tale to me. This the whole I, horseman of the sea thing. This horseman of the sea and this idea of like seven days, seven sacrifices. The sacrifices, these girls become the seagulls. And that's why they cry at night because they're so upset. Like it's so... We've been talking about mummy magic and all this kind of shit for like four movies. No, it's very Lady of the Lake. Right? But mythology. The, right? Yeah. So this is like the most fantasy and honestly like the most medieval song type story so that makes teddy a bard a bit right yeah, yeah like like and so like what i dig about this movie a lot is i really like this fantastic story and it doesn't even matter whether or not these women's souls become the seagulls and they cry at night because they lament their deaths that's not really relevant but the templars are real and the seagulls are cawing at night so like at the at the very least, those things are undisputable facts. Yeah. So, but like, I just it's so like you know what I mean. It's so almost flowery in its in its representation in this narrative, which I like quite a bit. I like to think that the ghost ship docks every single night, and that's why the seagulls begin. And they had stopped by in the film before this, and since they ended up on land, they're like, "Sweet, we can get ourselves some horses." And then they just drop a plank, drive the horses onto the ship, and every single night they just go out a little bit, disappear in the fog, come back in. They can sit out in the ocean for seven years, easy. Maybe that's what they were doing all the time when they were on the ghost galleon. For seven years they just chill out in the fog. It's possible. Then roll into Brazano, unload, well, go get their horses again. Or horsies, exclamation point, as it says in my notes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's 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 a lovely story, but it is again a mythology built up by the people that we're meeting this time. Mm-hmm. I really think it's the exact same Templars every time, but it's the different mythology every time. 
At the very least, what we do know for certain is that this pact that this village has with these Templars seem to keep them from killing everybody like everybody which is what their favorite thing to do is we all know this that the templars really like to just kill everybody it's about sacrificing uh hearts to their dark god Mm -hmm. and perpetuating their own existence this is where where the story comes a calling is the fact that lucy is to be selected and the reason why i dig this character is because she understands that her death is for the greater good and so she's like listen she doesn't want to die, mm-hmm. but it's for the betterment of everyone. And so she goes with them. And I like that, like, fucking Henry and Joan are just like, oh, okay. And then they just sort of sit there. And then while we know for a fact that, like, Lucy is getting tied. And she's not screaming or crying like anybody else. But she is getting tied to this thing. And she will be sacrificed like anybody else. And then later on, like, he's like, I should never have let her go. I'm like, yeah, obviously you should never have let her go. <laughs> yeah, she's definitely going to die, whether she was okay with it or not. But she also has no parents, so maybe it's like this sort of like lamenting, depressing reason that she wants to Where she feels alone? I yeah. don't know. Like, like I don't know. I, I like my life so much that I'd just be like, screw everybody. That's mm-hmm. why I like to read stories about heroic people in comic books, because they do things I never would. Um... He changes his mind. He's like, I'm marching down there. And since this works every night and no one really does anything about it, like, no one's really going to, like, stop this whole sacrifice. Meanwhile, we're not sure what happened to Teddy. I mean, the villagers fuck with this guy so much that they toss his ass off the side of, like, a very high cliff onto rocks. And then he does that thing that happens to people in the 70s when they're dead. (laughs) He just spurts out bright red blood. And I was like, okay, I guess that character is dead. It doesn't matter where you hurt somebody in the 70s. They're going to spit blood out their mouth. Yeah. and and But of course, like he's not dead, though, because he shows up later. Yeah. He was just really gravely injured. He was really gravely injured. And so back to the house for him. And eventually, they like as the Templars are approaching and Lucy gets rescued, she doesn't really want to be rescued. But she also like, well, okay, I've been rescued. So off we go, I guess. Because it's kind of like that thing, like, listen, I'm willing to die if I felt like that's what's happening, but I kind of feel like I'm not dying now, so I kind of want to get out of here, too. And so now it becomes this fucking panic mode, because the town realizes, holy shit. They've disrupted this ceremony. We're going to all be attacked. So everybody bugs out in a major way. What I like (laughs) is that Henry is probably one of the only people that has, like, a fucking car. Yeah. And... The some of the townsfolk fucking steal his car, and like he's like, what was that? He doesn't even really seem that upset about it. Like he's not like, you assholes. He's just like, what's happening? What? Uh-huh. And <laughs> and it's like, and I was just like, these people are dicks, man. Why would you ever like? I know like your Hippocratic oath is like do no harm and help people and all this kind of fucking shit. I'd just be like, fuck these people. Well, he, they weren't welcome there in the first place. They didn't want a fucking doctor. Like, I wish that the doctor would have told them that not only should you not be here, not only is it dangerous, and I'm not going to tell you why, they don't want you here. I think that would have helped chase him away. True. Maybe. But he also seems, like, really, like, stuck. Oh, he's just, like, a clenched-jawed, like, dude in a sweater. It's, like, what these... It's, like, the main male leads in these characters are. 
But this also does have some pretty good blind dead sieging going on. Mm-hmm. They got their little swords out. They're tinking it against the wall. <laughs> That's like my number one favorite. Yeah, they're it's so sad. Stabbing their way through wooden windows and stuff, or trying to it's reaching true. through anywhere they can. They're in every window, so if you open a window, there's gonna be a blind dead there. Yeah, it's <laughs> Which really sort true. of like a advent calendar of blind dead. Uh, one of the um, fucking old Teddy le- meets his end. He fucking gets cornered just outside the front door and gets skewered. And we know he's dead because he spits out more red blood. I was like, he can't have much more of that left in him. No. Yeah, poor guy. This is like, this is coming to like one of the parts of the film where I was screaming at my television. It's a slippery baby scene all over as far as I'm concerned. Because as the Templars siege the fucking house and Lucy, Henry, and Joan go upstairs they're like, we're going to go upstairs, and then we're going to get out that way. And what are we going to do? We're going to steal some fell horses. Yeah. But yeah. before that fucking happens, Lucy gets outside. No problem. She's fucking out there, lickety split. She's fucking down the roof, off the side. Fucking Henry, no problem. Here comes Joan. And she is literally saying, I can't leave me. I can't. Just leave me. It's like go. Slippery Baby plus Professor Gruber. Like, yeah. I am so helpless and useless. Just go. I'm fine dying here. I know I'm going to die here. And then she goes back inside and it's like, oh, yeah, there's mummies in here <laughs> with swords. And then she's like, Henry, help. Help. Henry, help me. Because she's useless because she has a husband. If she didn't have a husband, she would have been down there yes. as quick as Lucy. And, and then and then when he's like, he goes back into the house to get her. It's the only feminist statement that these films have. Yeah. That, Girls, if you get saddled up with a dude, you're going to become instantly useless and helpless. Yeah. And he's going to have to do everything for you, like save your ass. But yeah. And then um, fucking, like, fuck. Then when he's trying to get her off the roof again, leave me, leave me, I can't. I'm like, oh my god, yeah, jump. It's it's literally like in those fucking cartoons or like those um, sitcoms where someone's like hanging off of something. It's like I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I'm slipping, and they're like, like let go, and they're like a fucking inch off the ground, yeah, or like I'm drowning, I'm drowning, and it's like stand up, and they're in like waist deep water. It's fucking that. Like, where I'm just like, what the holy fuck is happening with this lady? Leave her. Lucy's your lady now. <laughs> That's what I would have done. Well, then, like, then the same fate would befall Lucy, and she'd become useless, too. Oh, that's Right now, true. she can run in heels, like every other girl that's single in these films. <laughs> <laughs> they steal the fell horses, and so here we are, riding along the beach, right? I love these scenes, This too. scene and they're is shooting great. day for night, too, which gives it an even more eerie feeling. People can yeah. make fun of that all they want. There's a lot of day for night in this one. There is. And, and the second, the second you get on a fell horse in these movies, you get spooky slow motion uh-huh. riding. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to matter where you're riding. It's going to sound like it's riding on cobblestone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is also one thing unique about this film that we failed to mention. This is the first time that people acknowledge the Templars chanting. They do. Uh, and it made me wonder. I always just thought it was eidetic sound through the others. Me too. Yeah. Like it's soundtrack. There's one point in the third film where we are pretty sure that Naomi hears them chanting. And then I thought, do did they did somebody hear them chanting in all of the films? Because we knew that they heard them chanting in the fourth one. Definitely. Because they 
draw attention to that. So it wakes them up at night, aside from the seagulls as well, um, and the church bells. So it makes me wonder in the first two, was all that wonderful soundtrack just them chanting and other people could hear it? But there's a lot of times when people can't seem to hear one another screaming in this film. At the very least, this film is definitely saying that these monks are chanting, like Benedictine monks almost. Like they're they're singing, the chanting, whatever they're doing, they are legitimately doing it. And by the way, the Templar Knights are hot on these fucking people's tails. And this is like, I hate this part because like my lady, my sweetheart, Lucy dies. But it almost seems like, well, she just gets separated from them. What happened? Like, like and she's in the water. I was like, I suppose like, like capable woman, but you add like a negative to her like mobility. And then the Templar is just like smoke her. They all basically just come down on her. And you would think, well, wait a minute. Like if she was supposed to be the sacrifice, do the Templars go away? Nah, they're pissed. They are pissed, and I guess they don't have time to carve her heart out or something. Maybe there was some sort of special preparation they needed. Mm-hmm. But yes, they are pissed. And meanwhile, fucking Henry and Joan, they go to the Templars' home. Their, their cave. Their yeah. cave, like where this is. And it gets to the point where you're watching this and you're like, they see the statue. And I'm like, are they just going to break that fucking statue? Are they just going to knock it over? There's an idea nobody ever had before. Why doesn't anyone just do this? And as the Templars are closing in on them... It's literally what they do. Yeah. And let me ask you this, because I was very curious about this, about your opinion on this. Is this the official end of the Templars? They die in this movie in a way that none of them have ever died before. Not only, they don't just fall down. They don't just go to sleep. They don't just explode. They gush blood. All this blood. Actual blood. Like Not all this dry ash, like I thought they were full of. Yeah, like... Apparently, all this blood that they're constantly consuming, giving their bodies vitality, destroying this statue of this god that they've been ritualistically feeding hearts to for centuries and drinking the blood of their victims has been destroyed and fucking falls apart like it's paper mache. And if it is like the theory you're positing, uh, one sect of many mm-hmm. blind dead that roam the earth. Um, forgotten Templars that are now immortal. There must be blood gushing Templars all over Portugal. Is that why this ends at four? There is a fifth one. It's unofficial. Unofficial. I've never though. seen it. Yeah. Head cannon. A head cannon. Oh my <laughs> god! I wish I had a fucking head cannon. Oh my god! I'm not even gonna look that term up. I'm gonna pretend I unheard it after today. <laughs> And hopefully my brain will be absolutely cooked because we've been talking for four and a half hours about Tombs of Blind Dead. <laughs> so I will probably forget every single word we said, let alone the ones I hate the most. So, yeah, I know this is the end of them. The mm-hmm. end of them. And I would love to see so much more Blind Dead. I want all kinds of Blind Dead films. I wouldn't mind uh, offshoots of this. But I'm very happy with it ending here in this way me too yeah but here's the ultimate question Mm -hmm. that i wanted to pose to you lydia rank them three and then all the other ones smooshed into one actually you know i i like night of the seagulls the least okay the story is interesting as a tombs of the blind dead film though night of the seagull is not one of my favorites whatsoever and it is kind of plotting and i don't care about any of the characters very much um, I like the third one very much because I like the Ghost Galleon story very, mm-hmm. very much. I like the Scooby-Doo nature. I like the tighter cast. I like 
some of the double crossing that's going on. Mm. I like just the look of everything. And you did point out that it does have the least amount of blind dead. We get really, they're very stingy, like you said. Mm -hmm. And it just never dawned on me because I just like that movie so much. Um, The first and second one are kind of tied because I like them pretty equally Mm -hmm. for their blind deadedness. Yeah. The first one is really better as far as a blind dead movie, though. I think like what I'll always me for me I'm a I'm a fairly typical person in 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 my horror analysis in which I always give props to the movie that set the table mm-hmm. that gave us other films but I say having rewatched all four of them recently I seem to enjoy the second one the most it's the most entertaining maybe it's because you're watching a lot of these movies together and you're like woof this one's goes by like a breeze 90 minutes nice and brisk lots of action i like the way the templars look and i like the story i like this idea of after 500 years revenge for one night in resulting in the wholesale slaughter of an entire town i like this first one the second most and i like night of the seagulls the third most and i like the ghost galleon the fourth most but that being said i like them all yeah like just because i just because i'm ranking them doesn't mean that any one of these movies is a ineffectual film i just think that amongst the four those are the ones that i personally like in that order you know what i think would be really fun is if you took them in order of two one three four and then seam them all together stitch them all together but you got to take the first two and flip-flop them so you have an abandoned village for them to be in, not mm-hmm. an abandoned village that suddenly becomes populated. <laughs> so flip two and one, smush them all together, and play them all and fast forward. I think that'd be super fun. You can probably <laughs> even put a little Benny Hill soundtrack behind if you need to. Well. Because it is a long watch. Speaking of long watch, this has been a fucking marathon episode. But for our 100th episode, I would expect nothing less and uh, you know what? I'm fucking pumped. I had a good time. And I hope you guys enjoyed us talking about four fucking movies for a century. We are as mummified and old as the Templars themselves. Speak for yourself. I have no facial hair. Wait, neither do you. That's right. I shaved my beard like I threatened. Yeah, it's like what? We're joking about it being a playoff beard? Or it was my playoff beard. Yeah. So for the, I'll, I won't shave my face for the next hundred episodes. Oh, that's, for sure. That's a fucking lie. That is a fucking lie. <laughs> At least trim, man. At least trim, trim, yeah. We don't want no uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead looking beardy going well, on there. In the last episode, you called me Barney Rubble. And I was like, wait, that's her slur for like unattractive men. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just the way the sun was hitting your hair. Yeah, that's fine. That's no, fine. And I was like, Barney Rubble didn't even have a beard. Oh, he did in some episodes when they joke about what they would do without wives. <laughs> if you guys ever want to request a film for us, you can check us out on Twitter. I am at Wes Deadair Nipe. Lydia is at Typical Lydia. You can also leave notes for us on our Facebook, on SoundCloud, and on the website at Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're going to be going bi-weekly, and I, for one, am excited about it because I think it will allow us to bring a higher quality podcast. Not that we really care about quality, um, but we will be able to be a little more diligent, and we'll be a little more diligent with any sort of requests that we get. So we're going to be weighing requests. 
but hopefully getting them out in a more timely manner and also getting more interesting things in our extracurricular activities outside of our day jobs and lives and the podcast doing other writing exercises which makes me very very excited so i'm looking forward to it next up we have father's day just Mm -hmm. because i want to make wes almost cry again (laughs) and then vamp which i'm pretty fucking excited about we just went and saw the void so I'm looking forward to seeing Father's Day, which I haven't seen. Um, I've seen it once since we watched it. I've I've, it I've literally only watched it at the theater that time with you. I have the Blu-ray. I'm, I've never cracked it open before, so I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Yeah, it'll be really, really cool. Um, Just before we out of here, I just want to say one more time, thank you, not only to everyone that's helped us make the podcast, but everyone listening right now. You don't make the podcast for people who don't listen. You make it for the people who do. And you also make it for yourself. And I think that if 100 episodes has taught me anything, it's that any idiot with a microphone can have a podcast. So if you're thinking about ever making a podcast, start today, right now. And you'll eventually get to 100 episodes if you just make a part of your routine. And you'll learn if you're enjoying it, actually, like you're envisioning you're enjoying it. Yeah. I was like, but it, and it doesn't even have to be that. If you want to write a book, you want to write a comic book, you want to do a podcast, you want to do anything. Sit down and do it. Yeah. Uh, And that's just my little imparting advice to you guys. And my challenge, just surround yourself with why not people and yes people, because I did. And she's sitting across from me right now, and I couldn't do the show without her. I'm the most negative yes person you've ever fucking met. It's great. (laughs) I'd like to give a big thank you to the cat who's been meowing for the last hour because he's trapped in a bedroom. (laughs) And on that note, I'm Wes Knipe. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you have been listening to the 100th episode of Dead Air. Holy fucking shit, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs>